Today is a banner day for Americans struggling to pay off their college debt. I'm very, very, very grateful because um, this is like obviously a big help to me personally. President Biden has announced plans to erase some federal student loan debt for millions of borrowers. It's Wednesday, August 24th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Those who'll benefit and those who'll be left out coming up. Ukraine is celebrating 31 years of independence from the Soviet Union today, and it's six months to the day since President Putin sent troops to try to bring Ukraine back under Russia's wing. We'll have an update on the fighting. And severe drought in Massachusetts has farmers tallying this year's losses. Many are working overtime to irrigate and supplement absent rainfall. Some streams and ponds they use have been drying up. Coming up, the lack of water from the Bay State to Texas to California. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Biden administration has announced its much-anticipated plans to erase some or all federal student loan debt for 43 million borrowers. NPR's Corey Turner has details. Here's how it'll work. Borrowers who earn less than $125,000 a year can receive up to $10,000 in cancellation. Borrowers who received a Pell Grant to attend college can qualify for up to twice that. $20,000 in cancellation. According to the administration, up to 43 million borrowers could qualify for help, and some 20 million borrowers could have their student loan debts erased entirely. The inclusion of more cancellation for lower-income borrowers appears to have been a late addition to Biden's plan, and according to the White House, it means nearly 90% of the benefits will now go to borrowers earning less than $75,000. Corey Turner, NPR News. Many students in eastern Kentucky are back for a new school year that would have started weeks ago had it not been for historic flooding. Many families lost virtually all of their belongings and are now in emergency housing. Armies of volunteers have been helping in various ways. They donated shoes to kids in time for the first day of school. Nonprofit groups such as Texas Baptist Men have teams in Kentucky and elsewhere still helping homeowners clear muddy debris. Jerry Hall, who retired from Boeing, thinks the recovery will take years. Reflecting on that, Hall shares an excerpt from a rare letter he says he and his team received from a flood survivor whose husband had died about a month before the floods. I really enjoy hugs. And I received plenty during the few days that you worked on my house. They were not just ordinary squeezes, but you hugged, and and those hugs lasted longer, just like my husband David's. Hall says his group also has boots on the ground in the Dallas-Fort Worth area of Texas, the latest site of destructive floods. The school board for Uvalde, Texas, is expected to decide today whether the school district's police chief should be fired. Pete Arredondo has been at the center of the public outrage over law enforcement's bungle response to the mass shooting at Robb Elementary School that left 19 children and two teachers dead in May. Despite Arredondo's claims to the contrary, the Texas Department of Public Safety says he acted as the incident commander the day of the shooting. President Biden today announced nearly $3 billion in new military assistance for Ukraine. NPR's Greg Myrie notes this is far larger than any previous single package. The U.S. will be sending a wide range of weapons, including artillery, drones, and air defense systems. President Biden's announcement comes on the day Ukraine is marking 31 years of independence from the former Soviet Union. Biden says Russia's war makes the anniversary bittersweet, but he added... The U.S. support will help ensure Ukraine can, quote, continue to defend itself over the long term. It's NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Members of the Massachusetts congressional delegation are praising President Biden's decision to cancel up to $20,000 in federal student loan debt for Americans who qualify. Congresswoman Catherine Clark says the move is a major milestone to lower costs for working families. Senator Elizabeth Warren calls the debt cancellation a powerful step to rebuild the middle class. She says more work is needed to make higher education more affordable. Boston City Councilor and candidate for Suffolk County DA Ricardo Arroyo says he never sexually assaulted anyone. He spoke at a press conference today after the Boston Globe reported that he was investigated for sexual assault twice when he was a teenager and not charged in either case. Arroyo says he was not aware of the investigations until this year and says he won't resign or back down from the election. This campaign is going to continue. We are going to continue to focus on making sure that we are running a campaign for justice and that we are reaching as many individuals as possible. Arroyo says whoever leaked the documents from the sexual assault investigations to the Globe did so to try to influence his campaign against DA Kevin Hayden. Hayden's office says it does not release investigation files on sexual assaults. A group trying to repeal the Massachusetts law that will allow undocumented immigrants to get a driver's license says it has more than enough signatures to get a question on this November's ballot to overturn the law. Maureen Maloney of Fair and Secure Massachusetts says more than 70,000 people signed the petitions and had different reasons for doing so. Concerns about voter fraud. Others felt that they're in the country illegally. They shouldn't be entitled to a driver's license. Giving a driver's license to an illegal alien would create a magnet environment and cause more illegal aliens to migrate to Massachusetts. The Secretary of State must next certify the signatures to determine if the repeal effort can move forward. Supporters of the new law say it will improve roadway safety, and they reject claims that it will lead to voter fraud. Massachusetts Congressman Stephen Lynch is making it known that he wants to be the next chair of the House Oversight Committee. Lynch sent a letter today to congressional colleagues about his interest in the top spot in the legislature's investigative panel. Two other Democrats are also interested in running. New York Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney is the chair of the committee right now, but she just lost a primary election and will leave office next year. 81 degrees now, a beautiful day today. Sunshine and clouds through the remainder of the afternoon into this evening. Tonight, partly cloudy, light breezes, about 68, and then a stretch of lovely days to end the work week. It's 4.07. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by OCLC through worldcat.org. Committed to helping users conduct research or find the latest bestseller by accessing libraries around the world. Learn more at worldcat.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today is Independence Day in Ukraine. 31 years ago, Ukraine split from the Soviet Union. Today also marks six months to the day since Russian President Vladimir Putin sent troops into Ukraine to try to bring the country back into Russia's orbit. Since then, some 13 million Ukrainians have been displaced. Thousands upon thousands of troops have died on both sides in the biggest war in Europe since 1945, and today brought yet more bloodshed. I want to bring in NPR's Frank Lankfitt, who we find in the southwestern port city of Odessa. And Frank, I was going to ask how Ukraine has celebrated Independence Day, but it sounds like, in fact, it has turned into an awful day there. It has. Um, it was very supposed to be very subdued. They were trying to avoid celebrations. 
so that there wouldn't be potential targets. But uh, President Zelensky has just announced that there was a missile strike on a rail station in the Dnipro region that's killed at least 15 people, left about 50 injured. So, you know, more violence today uh, on a day when the country would like to be celebrating. Yeah. Um, I want to put this in the broader context of how the war is going six months in, because I know you have been out talking to the military these past few days. Is Ukraine making progress on what they had promised would be a big counteroffensive? No, not at all. In fact, I'd say the counteroffensive that has been talked about has, is, hasn't materialized. And some commanders I talked to are upfront about that. You know, right now, Russia controls about 20 percent of the country in the east and the south. And when I was down here, I guess more than three months ago, I, I've been sort of struck at how limited the progress has been since I've been away. So hmm. Like, for instance, there was one village that NPR visited back in late April or so, and at that time it was like four miles from the front line. Now it's maybe 11 miles from the front line, but it's still shelled every day. It used to have about 7,000 people in it. It's now about 100. And I was actually going to go visit this village maybe yesterday, I was thinking about it, but it keeps getting hit on a daily basis. Uh, so another example, I was talking to a soldier in another part. This was up in a part of the Kherson region. And she said it had taken three months to take back another village. And that's because the Russians were so well dug in. Wow, I'm just doing the math. You're talking about uh, that one village that's still being shelled that moved from being four miles to 11 miles from the front line. And that was the efforts of four months. Is it that Russia is just putting up such strong defenses that, that Ukraine is having trouble? Yeah, I mean, that is one reason. The Russians have actually sent, because they expected some kind of counteroffensive, they sent thousands of troops down here to reinforce their lines. But there are other reasons as well. You know, Ukrainians want to go on the offense, but it takes a lot more troops and weapons to take land than it does to defend land. And I got to say, Ukrainians are better armed than when I last saw them down here. Back in April, they were complaining they had no long-range weapons. Now they have things like these HIMARS. These are sophisticated American precision-guided rockets. They can yeah. travel more than 50 miles. We've talked about this. And what they've allowed the Ukrainians to do is knock out a lot of Russian ammunition depots. And there's a colonel I was talking to a few days ago. His name is Roman Kostenko. And he said the ammunition, that loss of ammunition, is now forcing the Russians to be a lot more judicious in their targeting. And this is what he had to say. There are some of our positions they aren't shelling at all because they are currently shelling priority targets. Earlier, they shelled along the entire front line. Now they shell in specific places. And, and what this means also, Mary Louise, is the Ukrainians can move a lot more easily to set up new lines of attacks. So a few days back, I was driving on the road and I come across a bunch of Ukrainian tanks, two mobile rocket launchers, and they were comfortably moving around to new positions. But attacking does require lots of heavy weapons, and the Ukrainians continue to say they need a lot more of them. Although the U.S. and NATO would push back and say, look, we've given Ukraine a ton of weapons already. There, there was a big announcement of yet more money today. Yeah, the numbers have been astonishing. It's billions upon billions in military aid, and it's been done at an incredible pace. And in talking to U.S. officials, they said they had to look back actually to 1973 and the Yom Kippur War to find a time when the United States armed an ally, uh, in this case, uh, Israel back then, uh, with so much weaponry in such a short period of time. Frank, let me just step you back from the battlefield. I, I remember so well, six months ago today, we had a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mike Mullen, on NPR saying this war would represent a reordering of, of the world order, that this war would change NATO, would change the U.S. Has it? 
In some ways, yes. And in other ways, I think we need to see how this all plays out. I mean, certainly NATO and the U.S. did rally around Ukraine when, frankly, the Russians failed to take Kiev in the 72 hours roughly that they expected. And now what we've seen is NATO actually is in the process of expanding. Finland and Sweden are in the process of joining. But, you know, Mary Louise, NATO countries, they, you know, the military stocks, the treasuries are not bottomless. The various countries in Europe and elsewhere have different they have a variety of political priorities, inflation, climate change, China. And there's also we're waiting to see what happens in the winter when, um, you know, it could be a harsh winter without much Russian oil. So the worry here that you hear in Ukraine, especially among commanders, is there's going to be Ukraine fatigue, that the West won't give enough weapons for Ukraine to win, will eventually push Ukraine to go to the negotiating table with a weak hand. And they'll feel under pressure to give up land that right now they're continuing to fight really hard to win back. NPR's Frank Langfitt reporting from the port city of Odessa on this day, Independence Day in Ukraine. Thank you, Frank. Good to talk, Mary Louise. Today was supposed to be back to school day in Ohio's largest school district, but just days before students were set to return to their classrooms in Columbus, Ohio, the district's teachers' union voted to strike. This came after multiple negotiations by the Board of Education, and the union failed to produce a contract. Regina Fuentes is one of those teachers striking. She has taught in Columbus City Schools for more than 20 years, and she's a spokesperson for the union. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. Paint a picture of the conditions that you and other teachers are working in. What made things so extreme that you decided to strike? Well, you know, we have been pushing the district to fix our old buildings for a very long time. Um, we're dealing with buildings that are way too hot in the warm months and way too cold in the cold months. And, you know, we have reported problems of bad plumbing, doors that don't lock, windows that don't shut or uh, lock or open. And, you know, we're just tired of waiting. We want them to be held accountable when it comes to fixing these prob problems and not just make empty promises. Over the more than 20 years that you've been teaching in Columbus City Schools, what kind of impact have you seen this have on students? I mean, you just can't imagine, you know, and getting into class sizes, having a class full of 36 kids and it's 90 degrees inside the classroom. And, you know, all they're, they're not focused. They're going to start passing out and, you know, they can't focus on what's happening. Or if it's too cold, you know, they're, they're worried about wrapping up in blankets and extra coats. They're not, they're not work, working on um, the academics. And it really does take a toll on them. All over the country, teachers have been calling attention to difficult working conditions, especially given the pressures of the pandemic, remote schooling, pressure on curriculum, teacher resignations. How does what you're experiencing in Columbus, Ohio, compare to what you're hearing from colleagues in other areas? So what I think it speaks to is just the overall burnout. You know, teachers, I think we just for forever kind of make the situation as best as we possibly can. And, you know, we're just kind of like throw ourselves into it. And, you know, we just, we do it for the kids, but it comes a point where the everything boils over and you just can't take being um, non-appreciated anymore. And so if we are going to save public education, we have to start making an investment in retaining teachers and taking care of these old buildings and this not just happening in Columbus, Ohio. This is happening all over the nation. It's also been a difficult time for parents and students. Do you fear that your decision to strike 
could add to the stresses on them. Well, look, you know, I understand that this is a difficult situation and we we take that into consideration. But I hope that we're showing with this sacrifice, you know, of losing our pay, losing our health insurance while we're on this strike. I hope that we are demonstrating to them just how passionate we are about getting these schools fixed and, you know, getting this change. And I also hope that, you know, the parents see that we're trying to set a pathway for the future that, you know, it's we're not just going to take the status quo and accept that they might get to these things. We want them to be held accountable. They hold teachers accountable. They hold students accountable. It's time for the elected officials to be held accountable to do what the public wants. You are talking about a national problem of deprioritizing public schools and teachers. Is this something that any one labor agreement can fix? You know, it could be it could be the start. You know, I don't see us being the one thing that changes the the whole nation. But you know what? If I help my kids have better um, situations and better working or uh, learning conditions, then, you know, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. So what kind of conversations have you been having with students and parents as you walk the picket line? Well, our parents and our, our students, they're proud of us, you know, because we one of the reasons why we're even you know pushing for this is because we watch them we're on the front lines every day watching our students suffer in these conditions that we hear their complaints we hear their cries we make the you know we fill out the 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 work orders to try and get things fixed and see things that never get fixed and so you know we've had enough so we never wanted to reach the point where we were striking, but striking seems to be the only thing that is getting their attention and letting them know we're serious. People may remember back in 2018, there was a wave of teacher strikes across the country. Right now, this seems limited. Do you expect it might catch on more broadly? Yes, I do, because, you know, workers across the nation want some respect, and this economy is not getting easier to live in, you know, and we... We deserve that respect. That's Regina Fuentes, a Columbus City Schools teacher and spokesperson for the Teachers Union. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And NPR reached out to the Columbus Board of Education but did not hear back from them before airtime. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, water, water, almost nowhere from ponds and streams in Massachusetts to California. A drought update and the consequences coming up. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Music Emporium, guitar sellers for more than 50 years, celebrating the enduring presence of music made on the front porch and center stage. More at themusicemporium.com. Stocks posted modest gains today. The Dow and S&P snapped a three-day slide. The Dow rose nearly a fifth of a percent, 60 points, to close at 32,969. S&P gained nearly 0.30 percent to finish at 4141. And the Nasdaq pulled in about 0.40% to end the session at 12,432. A new life sciences manufacturing plant in Plainville will employ about 300 people. Thermo Fisher Scientific opened the facility today. It produces a component used in gene therapies. The expansion will bring the number of the company's employees in Massachusetts to more than 3,500. All the details of this day in business on Marketplace at 630. It's now 420.
We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sullivan Tire and Auto Service, family-owned and operated, offering brand-name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. And Comcast Business. Whether your business is starting or growing, Comcast Business is working to build a network to keep customers connected. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. It's been a really nice day. Should be a, a nice evening as well. Sunshine and clouds mixing it up. Then tonight, partly cloudy skies, light breezes. Temperatures about 60 degrees. For tomorrow, sunshine again. Highs in the mid-80s. Friday, more sunshine and a little bit higher up in the high 80s. 81 degrees now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at indeed.com NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Around the country, severe droughts made worse by climate change are affecting farmers, ranchers, and homeowners. We're going to check in with reporters in three states, Massachusetts, Texas, and California. First, Jill Kaufman from New England Public Media reports the U.S. Department of Agriculture declared the drought in most of Massachusetts a natural disaster. In Granby, Massachusetts, at Red Fire Farm, some fields are looking worse than others. I mean, we have one field that we were irrigating early in the year with drip irrigation, and it was going fine. We were growing some of our early and summer cabbage there and broccoli and some kale. Ryan Voiland and his wife own the 100-plus acre farm with a retail store and a wholesale business. That particular field we were irrigating from a stream, that stream suddenly just dried up. Where he can irrigate, Voiland says... Things will grow okay, but he can't get to every field, and he's had to make some tough choices. Plants are visibly wilting because of this summer's severe drought. For many New England farmers, irrigation used to be a supplement for relatively regular rainfall. It takes Voiland an hour and a half just to set up this giant sprinkler and hose that creeps along at a really slow pace. Most days during the drought, he started watering at 4.30 in the morning, He shuts it all down around 9 at night. That's after a full day of running a farm. Most summer crop harvests in Massachusetts will be smaller this year at a time when inflation has made supplies more expensive. Fuel costs and labor are really high. Voiland and other farmers have had to raise their prices. But heat and drought are also making the peaches sweeter this year, says Ben Clark at Clarkdale Farm in Deerfield, Massachusetts. In Western and Central Mass, we, we have been in a, in a pretty severe drought. Um, it's the biggest drought in, in my memory, and my, my father's been farming for 50 years here, um, and this is the, the driest summer he's seen. Clark is president of the Massachusetts Fruit Growers Association, which is looking ahead to the apple season, big business in New England. There'll be less to harvest, Clark says, but there will be a crop. The trees in his fourth-generation orchard have been stressed But older trees have deep roots. They find water, Clark says. They're bound to do better than the new types of trees he and other fruit growers are now planting. You know, more efficiency, higher yields. Um, They're small trees with a small root system. And 
really need the water. Um, they require it. Otherwise, they, they won't survive. Some welcome rain fell earlier this week. If there's more of it, it could make all the difference for the winter squash and pumpkins that usually get picked off their vines in the fall. For NPR News, I'm Jill Kaufman in Granby, Massachusetts. And I'm Mitch Borden in Marfa, Texas. This week, storms have been passing over the state, providing communities with much-needed rain. But that may just be a small reprieve as Texans continue to face the worst drought the state's seen in over a decade. For state climatologist John Nielsen-Gammon, the severity of the drought is obvious. So we've seen crop failures, reduced yields. We're seeing water restrictions in place in many areas of the state as aquifers and reservoir levels get low. In West Texas, months with little to no rain have left ranchers like Sarah McKenzie Evans in a tough spot. As we drive around her ranch looking for cattle, you can see cacti and mesquite are dying here. Here they are. I bet they'll move now. The landscape looks desaturated as heat waves drift on the horizon. There are only 13 cows left on the ranch, and Evan says the rest of the herd, about 250 cattle, were sent away to a feedlot months ago. Hi, girls. She starts doling out hay to the hungry Black Angus cows. They've gotten used to getting hand-fed since there's little left to graze. When I visited her a few weeks ago, it had been nearly a year since I had last rained. Evans described the situation pretty quickly. Bleak. <laughs> Bleak is what comes to mind. It's, it's been hot and dry. Um, this drought is, I, I don't know, it seems like they're always terrible when you're in the middle of them. Ranchers like Evans are having to make calculated decisions to keep up with rising costs and to preserve their land. How many cows do I sell? You sell your oldest cows first. How many of my young cows do I keep? And these are all business decisions, but it feels, it feels more than a business decision. It feels like you're making decisions on things that you have a relationship with. And it all takes a toll, she says, emotionally, financially, and spiritually. I think the, the big question to me that's looming is how much longer do we have? Every week, every time we have um, one more feed bill, how much longer can I hang on? And that's, that's the real question. Evan's grandfather used to say, the meanest thing about a drought is that you don't know when it'll end. And experts are forecasting a dry fall and winter, which means Texas ranchers like Evan's could be in for some long, dry months ahead. For NPR News, I'm Mitch Borden in Marfa, Texas. I'm Aaron Stone in Los Angeles, where more than a third of water goes to outdoor irrigation, a lot of it at homes. Because of the historic drought, six million Southern California homes can water their lawns only once or twice a week. And a complete ban may come soon. Walking a lawn and tree-lined street in the lush neighborhood of Hancock Park is Damon Ayala, a patroller with the city's Water Conservation Response Unit. He's already written a citation for sprinklers being on when they shouldn't be. His unit's been called Water Cops, but Ayala prefers a different label. We're more like water educators <laughs> because our primary objective is not to fine anybody. Fines do not help us save water. We'd rather educate and get behavioral change. Ayala says fines do little to stem the flow of the biggest residential users. The LA Times recently reported Kim Kardashian is among several celebrities who have flouted the rules. But the majority of people are listening. 
L.A. used a record low amount of water in June and July. People are aware. Hancock Park resident Shlomate Yu says her neighbors seem to mostly be doing their part. A lot of neighbors have stopped, but then there's some people who seem to don't know or have ignored the new regulations. <laughs> so it's a mixed bag here. One obvious indication, lawns are starting to go brown. California stands to lose 10% of its water supply in the next 20 years as the climate crisis dries out the West. To put that in context, that's more than the state's largest reservoir, which is 35 miles long, can hold at capacity. One way the state aims to save more water, by removing 500 million square feet of lawns by 2030. So lawns, that symbol of the American dream, are looking to be on their way out in Southern California. That's the case for Lynetta McElroy, who moved to Lamert Park in the 1980s. She replaced her grass lawn with a drought-tolerant landscape during the last severe drought in 2014, the first on her block to do so. It was odd, it was different, but um, I feel that it was not only the right thing to do, I felt very firmly about that, but I was able to educate so many others, and they came around. Now, several of her neighbors also have drought-tolerant landscapes. I am happy that we're part of the solution. For NPR News, I'm Erin Stone in Los Angeles. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The Red Sox have put Brian Bello on the mound tonight at Fenway for the middle game in their three-game set with Toronto. A glimmer of hope today for Sox fans have seen enough this season. Major League Baseball has released next season's schedule. The season opener will be March 30th, and it'll happen at Fenway Park against Baltimore. The regular season will also end against Baltimore. That'll be at Camden Yards on October 1st. Red Sox and Yankees won't meet until June 9th. It'll happen in the Bronx. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU Center for Professional Education, offering certificates in real estate studies. Stay current and competitive in commercial real estate, facilities management, and real estate finance. Learn more at an information webinar, Tuesday, August 30th at 2 p.m. Sign up at bu.edu professional. Four-day work week sound pretty nice, right? Well, in theory, anyway. Ultimately, the idea of having the day and not really feeling like you could fully take the day or feel guilty about taking the day was more stressful. Oh, that's disappointing. I'm Kai Rizdal, the unsuccessful four-day workweek experiment. Next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Speaking from the White House today, President Biden announced his long-awaited plan to deliver on his campaign promise to reduce or cancel student loan debt for millions of Americans. Biden says borrowers who earn less than $125,000 a year are eligible for the loan forgiveness program. Using the authority Congress granted the Department of Education, we will forgive $10,000 and outstanding federal student loans. In addition, students who come from low-income families, which allowed them to qualify to receive a Pell Grant, will have their debt reduced $20,000. Biden also says a pause on student loan payments will be extended through the end of the year. 
Some economists say loan cancellation won't solve the college affordability crisis and could lead to higher inflation. Ukrainians around the world are marking 31 years since the country declared independence from the Soviet Union. NPR's Yulian Haida reports the Ukrainian diaspora is using their position to promote independence six months after Russia invaded the country. The Ukrainian World Congress says 20 million Ukrainians live outside of Ukraine. Another 6 million have fled since February. Christian Boris was born in Canada. In February, he started a company called St. Javelin, which has raised millions of dollars for Ukraine. Growing up, it was always like, oh, you're Ukrainian, that's like Russian, right? I don't think that people will ever say that again. Like many, Boris is amazed Ukraine has made it this far. I broke down watching Putin say that they were invading because I just thought, like, my friends are all going to die. Independence events have taken place in dozens of cities around the globe, while rallies inside of Ukraine are banned for safety reasons. Yulian Haida, NPR News, Kamenets Podilsky, Ukraine. Stocks finished modestly higher on Wall Street today. The Dow gained 59 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The MBTA's commuter rail is expanding train service between Foxborough and Boston starting next month. Today, the T announced a one-year pilot program. There will be 21 trips a day between Gillette Stadium and South Station. Parking for all rail riders will be free at the stadium during the pilot. That's courtesy of Patriots owner Bob Kraft. The T canceled the previous Foxborough rail pilot program in 2020 because of the pandemic. Celebrity chef Mario Batali has agreed to settle lawsuits with Massachusetts women accused accusing him of sexual assault. Lawyers for the two women say the matter has been resolved to the satisfaction of all parties and refuse to comment further. In the lawsuit, the women had claimed Batali sexually assaulted them on several occasions. The settlement comes more than two months after Batali was acquitted of a criminal charge based on the accusations of one of the women. There are shows of solidarity in Massachusetts with the people of Ukraine. The country is observing its 31st Independence Day as the Russian invasion of that country hits the six-month mark today. The Ukrainian flag today was raised in Salem and at Boston City Hall. As WBR's Josie Guarino reports, people will gather in Boston Saturday to show Ukraine is not alone. At least 3,000 people are expected at Boston's annual Ukrainian Independence Day Festival. Organizer Olga Lizovska says that's just the number of people who checked in on social media. It is especially important for people to show their support and to learn more about Ukraine and how it is a totally different country from Russia and how it is an independent nation that deserves the right to be sovereign. The free festival will include folk art, live music, and traditional dance. It's at Boston University Beach from 2 to 10. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. It's 435. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicondental Implants, offering patients a same-day solution for missing teeth, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures. 617-524-3900. Some sunshine and fair weather clouds gracing us through the evening. Partly cloudy tonight, right about 68 again. And tomorrow creeping to the mid-80s, the upper 80s on Friday with sunshine both days. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Easy Cater, committed to helping companies from nonprofits to the Fortune 500 Find food for meetings and team lunches, tax-exempt ordering and delivery nationwide at easycater.com. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, 
a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. After months of speculation, President Biden announced today a sweeping move to erase some federal student loan debt for up to 43 million people. The plan would offer $10,000 in debt cancellation to most borrowers and twice as much for lower-income folks. For the details, we're joined by NPR education correspondent Corey Turner. Hey, Corey. Hey, Ari. Walk us through the basics. How exactly would this plan work? Well, all borrowers who earn less than $125,000 a year can qualify for up to $10,000 in debt cancellation. Borrowers who received a Pell Grant to attend college, they can get up to $20,000 in cancellation. And overall, the White House says up to 43 million borrowers could benefit. Uh, And of those, up to 20 million borrowers could have their debts completely erased. My colleague Sequoia Carrillo spoke with one of those borrowers right after the announcement just a couple of hours ago. Um, Triana Downing has about $16,000 in federal loans and thinks she should qualify for the $10,000 in cancellation. I'm very, very, very grateful um, because this is like obviously a big help to me personally. So, Downing said her big question now, Ari, is when will she get that help? And do you have an answer to that question? Um, Do you know when and and whether borrowers are going to need to do anything specific to get it? Well, it's a little complicated. It's a bit of a hitch. Um, Because of the means testing, most borrowers are likely going to need to submit some kind of basic application that verifies their income and that they qualify for this relief. According to the White House, only about 8 million borrowers already have that information on file. They are the lucky ones. They will likely have their debts erased automatically without having to do anything. The other 35 million borrowers or so will have to act to get the help. There had been calls to cancel all student debt or to go up to $50,000. Obviously, this plan does not go that far. What's the reaction to that been? Well, one of the chief proponents of canceling more was Senator Elizabeth Warren. And in a statement, she said, quote, today is a day of joy and relief. Another staunch proponent, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, tweeted that President Biden's action to cancel student debt is a victory for the movement and so many families. And, you know, I, I think this move also helps protect Biden at least a bit from criticism of earlier proposals um, that Folks said focus too much help on borrowers who don't need it. Doubling the amount of cancellation for lower income borrowers was really a late pivot, Ari. And according to the White House, it means roughly 90% of this benefit will now be going to borrowers who earn less than $75,000 a year. A big underlying issue here is just the cost of college. Is there anything in today's news that might address that? Yes and no. There is nothing that is going to drive down the cost of college. Nothing. Which Representative Virginia Fox, the ranking Republican on the House Education Committee, pointed out in a pretty scathing statement to NPR, saying, quote, taxpayers are forced to pay for a bill that they should not owe, and colleges are allowed to continue raising tuition. This is wrong, unfair, and irresponsible, she said. There's also been criticism from other Republicans and some Democrats who worry about this plan's effect on inflation and the economy. Um, But to your point, Ari, about the cost of college, I should say there are a few big changes here that should help future borrowers afford college. 
Biden proposed a new kind of income-driven repayment plan that would reduce monthly payments based on discretionary income. Uh, the plan would also forgive some remaining debts after 10 years instead of 20. And perhaps most importantly, it would cover unpaid monthly interest as long as the borrower is making payments. And that could be huge for borrowers who in the past have seen their balances balloon because of interest. NPR's Corey Turner, thank you. You're welcome. Collard greens, they are an easy-to-grow, nutrient-rich vegetable, and they've long been a staple for many Southern families, especially African-American families. For centuries, backyard gardeners have cultivated a wide variety of unique collards beyond what you would find in the store, but with fewer small-scale growers left, that diversity is on the decline. And Piers Daniel Wood visited the dedicated farmers reviving these these rare varieties before they disappear. Ira Wallace is holding court in the kitchen of Acorn Community Farm, a cooperative near Richmond, Virginia, where she lives and works. Usually at this point, uh, I'll put a lid on it for five minutes and then call it done. She's busy chopping a bunch of brightly colored collard greens and holds up a particularly vibrant leaf. It's purple, and the veins are white and purple. They just pop out when you pick them up, and you think, that's got to be good for me. The 74-year-old is a legend in the American seed-saving community, having worked for over 40 years to preserve heirloom vegetables. Some young seed savers even referred to her lovingly as Mama Ira. Six years ago, she helped launch the Heirloom Collard Project, a collective of farmers and activists working to preserve and regrow rare collards before they disappear. You know, and I've grown a lot of collards. I, until we started working with this Heirloom Collard Project, I didn't know there were so many collards and so many colors of green that you can get out of one vegetable. The project holds a growing collection of greens that have been passed down through generations. Some, like Fuzzy's Cabbage Collard and Big Daddy Greasy Green Collard, are named after the people who faithfully shaped these vegetables over their lifetimes. Others, like the Henpecked Collard or the Old Timey Blue Collard, are named for their unusual shape or color. Wallace credits the rediscovery of many of these greens to Ed Davis, a professor at Virginia's Emory and Henry College who's become something akin to a collard librarian. About 20 years ago, he and his colleagues began driving the back roads of the South, hunting for those rare collards. They'd stop wherever they saw unusual-looking varieties from the road. We kind of sometimes felt predatory because we were racing around and driving as fast as you can on these country roads before dark. They'd rush door to door. I'd be talking to an old lady. I've got her seed now, but I don't want to be mean. <laughs> She's wanting to give me a fruitcake. I have another piece of fruitcake, and, I, and, and I've, got, I've got to go look for more seed. Over the years, Davis traveled more than 12,000 miles, collecting samples from 78 seed savers. He donated the seeds to a USDA seed bank, where they will be kept indefinitely and regrown periodically to maintain the genetics. When Ira Wallace heard about that seed collection, she knew that keeping these varieties in a seed bank wasn't enough. She teamed up with Davis and farmers from around the country to create the Heirloom Collard Project. The goal is to get these seeds into people's gardens and onto their dinner tables. This is an idea that resonates deeply with a new generation of farmers, people like 29-year-old Amira Mitchell. Seeds are, in fact, living beings, and they need to live, and they need to grow, and they need to change. I sat down with her at her new farm in rural eastern Pennsylvania. Her farm is called Sista Seeds, and it specializes in producing fruit and vegetable seed varieties developed by African Americans and West Indians. Now, she plans to grow several varieties for the Heirloom Collard Project. One, the Moses Smith Yellow Cabbage Collard, is an African-American stewarded green that hails from the same region of North Carolina as Mitchell's ancestors. So, of course, I had to grow it. So I'm so looking forward to meeting it for the first time this fall. 
um, and, and saving those seeds this following uh, season. She plans to sell the seeds next year, once this year's crop has overwintered. But she's not just growing the seeds to sell, and she's not just growing them for the Heirloom Collard Project. I'm growing these seeds for myself. <laughs> I'm growing these seeds to honor my ancestors who stewarded them. And I'm growing these seeds so that I can be a good ancestor to my descendants. And when her yellow cabbage collards are ready for the Thanksgiving table this fall, you can bet forebears like Moses Smith would deem her efforts a success. For NPR News, I'm Daniel Wood. You can find pictures of those seed savers along with all those colorful collard greens on NPR's website. Just search for NPR Collards. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In Florida, the stage is now set for one of the biggest gubernatorial contests in this year's elections. Democrats have chosen Charlie Crist to oppose incumbent Republican Governor Ron DeSantis. Crist previously served as Florida's governor more than a decade ago as a Republican, but later switched parties. NPR's Greg Allen reports Democrats are hoping Crist's moderate tone and familiarity to voters will help them unseat one of the nation's most outspoken conservative governors. During the primary, Charlie Crist's opponent tried to raise questions with voters about his Republican past. It didn't work. Crist coasted to a big win by almost 25 points. Last night, he told Floridians the stakes in this election couldn't be higher. Our fundamental freedoms are literally on the ballot, my friends. A woman's right to choose on the ballot. Democracy on the ballot. Your rights as minorities are on this ballot. Chris has held a variety of elected positions in the state over three decades. He was elected governor as a Republican in 2006, but left office after one term to run for the U.S. Senate. He lost the nomination to Marco Rubio. He later changed parties and was elected to Congress as a Democrat. He's likable, well-known throughout the state, a consummate retail politician. Democrats hope he'll make a welcome contrast to the pugnacious governor, Ron DeSantis. DeSantis, who appears to be laying the groundwork for an eventual presidential bid, has built a national profile. He's a regular on Fox News, attacking the media, the Biden administration, corporations, and anyone that doesn't share his conservative values. Last week, he was in Pennsylvania, campaigning with the Republican gubernatorial nominee there, controversial election denier Doug Mastriano. We must fight the woke in our schools. We woke in government agencies. We can never, ever surrender to woke ideology. Florida's economy post-COVID has done well. Unemployment is at a historic low, and the state has a $22 billion budget surplus. But there are persistent problems, including low wages, a lack of affordable housing, and spiking homeowners' insurance rates in a hurricane-prone state. Max Stepanovich, a former Republican political strategist, says don't expect DeSantis to spend much time on those bread-and-butter issues. What you're going to see in the general election in Florida, and I suspect all across the country, is the culture war on steroids. DeSantis slams Democrats, including Chris, for opposing his decisions during the pandemic, to send students back to class, to ban vaccine and mask mandates, and any rules limiting businesses from restaurants to theme parks. Instead, they're basically running as an extension of Joe Biden. And I don't think that that's going to be something that is going to fly. In Florida, DeSantis's approval numbers, around 50 percent, are significantly higher than Biden's, 38 percent, according to one recent poll. But appearing on CNN today, Chris said he believes Biden will help him win. He's a good man. He's a great man. He's a great president. I can't wait for him to get down here. I need his help. I want his help. 
Democrats and Christ have a big challenge ahead, beginning with money. DeSantis has a huge lead in fundraising. And after years as a swing state, almost evenly split between Republicans and Democrats, Florida has tilted red in recent years. Republicans now outnumber registered Democratic voters. Even so, as one voter emerged from the polls yesterday, Democrat DeAndrea Mujahideen said she believes her party can unseat DeSantis. I'm an optimist, and I believe so, yes. You know, I don't believe in the scare tactics and whatnot, and I'm really hoping that people can actually stand up and actually see what's truly going on. History is not on their side. The last Democrat elected governor in Florida was Lawton Childs, and that was nearly three decades ago. Greg Allen, NPR News, Miami. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, a look at one of the newest pop culture archetypes to hit the screen, the morally dubious podcaster. That's still ahead. Brian Bellow does pitching honors tonight at Fenway Park for the middle game in the three-game set for the Sox in Toronto. It'll be Jose Barrios for the Jays. The Sox have lost four of their last five games. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource. Energy is at the center of how we live today, and with global energy prices increasing, the impact to families can be significant. Eversource may be able to help with their flexible payment plan options. For more information and to see if you qualify, visit Eversource.com. Stay informed with all that's happening in the news. Go to WBUR.org or ask your smart speaker to play WBUR. Beautiful day now. Sunshine and clouds into the evening. Tonight, partly cloudy, light breezes again right about 68 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny and beautiful. Temperatures in the mid-80s. Friday, more sunshine, but a little bit hotter with highs in the upper 80s. In the Boston area now, 78 degrees at 449. WBUR supporters include Semester Off, an educational and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college-age students and high school grads get on track. Academics, executive functioning coaching, yoga, and exercise are designed to help develop resilience, improve confidence, and learn new skills. Fall semester starts September 19th. Semesteroff.com. And Sullivan Tire and Auto Service. Family owned and operated, offering brand name tires and complete auto service for more than 67 years. More at SullivanTire.com. As laws go into effect that limit what Florida teachers can talk about in class, a high school student asked their teacher if the campus is really safe from homophobia. I said we're going to provide safety for all of our students, but in my heart, I don't know that that's true. Florida teachers navigate the rules of the so-called Don't Say Gay Law tomorrow on Morning Edition from NPR News. That's Morning Edition 5 to 9 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. One of pro football's legendary quarterbacks has died. Lynn Dawson was a Hall of Famer, Super Bowl MVP with the Kansas City Chiefs. He was also a renowned broadcaster later in his career. He was 87. Greg Eklund has this remembrance. As a quarterback, Len Dawson was nicknamed Lenny the Cool because he displayed so much poise under pressure. Friendly and likable. He was instrumental in delivering Kansas City its first biggest sports moment, a Super Bowl championship in 1970 for the NFL's Kansas City Chiefs. 
He deserves all the praise we can send his way, Pat Summerall. He did an, an excellent job. What an afternoon. 12 out of 17. His pass completion record for the afternoon. As described on the CBS telecast, Dawson's performance in Super Bowl IV led him to being named the most valuable player in 1993. 23 years later, he said it still meant a lot. We were the underdog in that game. I mean, we were supposed to get beat by a couple of touchdowns. Thankfully, we didn't believe that. I look back now on the MVP, that's really something special, really. Dawson's best season individually was in 1964 when he threw 30 touchdown passes in a 14-game season. It was a team record that stood until 2018 when Patrick Mahomes shattered it with 50 touchdown passes. Mahomes said that year he was amazed that Dawson's record stood so long. You throw 30 touchdowns in today's league where there's a lot more passing and you're still having a great season. And so for him to be that advanced and, I mean, he won a Super Bowl here. I mean, he's one of the best quarterbacks to ever play. Dawson's celebrity status in Kansas City wasn't just because of what he did on the field. He began his broadcasting career in radio and television while still playing. Dawson often had to shuttle from the practice field to the TV studio. I'm on the news set at 6 o'clock, go home and have dinner with my family, come back and do the 10 o'clock news. And uh, the biggest reason for that was we didn't make very much money back in those days. Dawson retired as a player in 1975, but his work in broadcasting expanded to the national level when he became a game analyst for NBC and a co-host of Inside the NFL on HBO. In addition to his TV broadcasts, he also did radio for the Chiefs on game days until he retired in 2017. Dawson was born and raised in Ohio, but made Kansas City his home, and his TV audience appreciated his straightforward approach. It's a good thing that they didn't take prisoners in this game because there would have been a lot of guys gone. Kansas City, let's face it, they did not play worth a darn out there. Len Dawson is among only three in the Pro Football Hall of Fame as a player and a broadcaster. For NPR News, I'm Greg Eklund in Kansas City. One of this summer's most popular shows just streamed its season finale. Only Murders in the Building features a slimy true crime podcaster played by Tina Fey. I need something with famous people and blood and ideally a hot girl with a great rack. God, I need a murder. Morally dubious podcasters are all over popular culture right now, says NPR's Netta Ulubi. You might have seen a morally dubious podcaster in the new movie Vengeance, who exploits the possible murder of a girl he briefly dated. I have a story. Can it wait? No, I'm in Texas. I'm on my way back from a funeral. Oh, my God, I'm so sorry. It's okay. It's not someone I was close to. Or the one inserting herself into a crime scene in the show Dexter, New Blood. I'm a podcaster. I have a real aversion to liars. Oh, no, I wasn't lying. I said I was here to help with the search, and I was. And you're doing a story about it. Morally dubious podcasters are an obvious archetype for our times, says Nicholas Qua. He covers podcasts for Vulture and New York Magazine. I think it's the cravenness of their pursuit to become famous, to achieve notoriety. We're making a podcast and... We're investigative uh... journalists. Qua has noticed these kinds of characters, these morally dubious podcasters, for a while. My favorite was the first one I ever noticed, which was the true crime podcasters on 2018's Halloween. They are terrible. Aaron and I have made several award-winning public radio exposés. No, not public radio. But Nicholas Qua says, don't worry, NPR is not really to blame. 
the rise of the morally dubious podcast is intertwined with the fact that there are quite a bit of morally dubious podcasters. There is a notorious example from the New York Times. How does ISIS prepare you to kill people? Is there anything? Uh, they, we had dolls. dolls. Yeah, we had dolls to practice on. The podcast Caliphate had to be essentially retracted when its sensational subject turned out to be a liar. And Kwa says it's hardly alone. Look at up and down the Apple podcast charts and you'll find any number of frankly morally dubious true crime shows. People who, in some cases, plagiarize other people's reporting and accessorize it and maybe spread inconsistent facts or incomplete truths. <laughs> Kwa has written about one of those podcasts, Crime Junkie, that happens to be one of the most popular in the country. But it's also not just true crime. Morally dubious podcasters of all genres are showing up in popular culture. Friends, this is a podcast. That's Latin for as is. Knew it is. We record it, slap some stolen music on it, and then up to the web it goes. The oh, peacock great. comedy oh, Rutherford Falls features several morally dubious podcasters. A smarmy Joe Rogan-inspired racist and an opportunistic NPR reporter pitching a public radio travesty. This is a story about stories. Our narratives about who we are and how we got here. It's about a town but it's also about everything. Wow, everything. Sounds big. All of this reminds NPR's pop culture podcaster, Linda Holmes, of the early days of blogging. So you can start a podcast tomorrow with very little equipment, right? That means, she says, a lot of people who are not journalists can suddenly fill the space. Talented people, celebrities, people whose voices were traditionally marginalized. But then you also do get, in podcasting, as was the case in blogging, a certain amount of grifting and people whose stuff is kind of gross, as well as just people who aren't following, I don't know, the rules that you would want them to follow. To a certain extent, the morally dubious podcaster is a new twist on a classic figure, the stranger in town. It's an expository device, a way to frame a story. But right now, when numerous polls show trust in the media collapsing, the morally dubious podcaster has particular power. You don't know why she's here or what she's mining from your truth. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. This week marks six months since Russia launched its war against Ukraine. One of the stories we've covered was the siege and destruction of the city of Mariupol. Last month, an explosion rocked a prison where Ukrainian POW... Support for NPR comes from this station and from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. And from Progressive Insurance with Snapshot, a personalized program that bases rates on safe driving habits at Progressive.com. 
not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's turned a little more humid this afternoon. Clouds and sunshine are on into the evening hours. Tonight should fall to about 68 degrees for a low. And then for the next three to four days, boring in a good way, though. Mostly sunny skies reaching the mid-80s tomorrow. The upper 80s Friday, then pulling back to about 80 degrees over the weekend. 79 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 459. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. President, President Biden, Biden announces a plan to, to help Americans who are saddled with college debt. Here's what my administration is going to do, to provide more breathing room for people so they have less burden by student debt. Thousands of dollars of relief for millions of student borrowers coming up. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the city manager of Uvalde, Texas, reflects on where the community is three months after a deadly mass shooting at Robb Elementary School. Researchers have been studying the impact of extreme heat on prison inmates. The question that we started out with is what is the effect of a hot day versus a moderate temperature day on acts of violence in prison? They found that the lack of places to cool down in some prisons can lead to more violence. These stories and the forecast are on the way. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden has unveiled his long-awaited plan to deliver student loan debt relief. The president saying student loan borrowers will be eligible for up to $10,000 in student debt cancellation for individuals earning less than $125,000 a year. And individuals who receive Pell Grants, those with the most financial need, could see an additional $10,000 in federal loan debt cut. Biden saying the measure provides relief for millions, in some cases doing away with student loan debt entirely. 95% of the borrowers can benefit from these actions. That's 43 million people. The administration is also extending a pause on student loan payments through the end of this year. Borrowers will be assessed based on the income they report in 2021 and 2022. A special election in New York is giving Democrats more evidence. Anger over the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v.ersus Wade is motivating voters. NPR's Domenico Montanaro explains. Democrat Pat Ryan defeated Republican Mark Molinaro by two points Tuesday night in New York's 19th congressional district. The seat is evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans, and it's the kind of seat Republicans need to win in November to make significant gains in the House. Ryan made abortion rights the center of his campaign while Molinaro focused on inflation and crime. In keeping with the trend for midterm elections, Republicans are still favored to take control of the House this fall, given the small number of seats they would need to win. But some momentum is clearly on Democrats' side and may mean an election that was shaping up to be a red wave could be something quite a bit less than that. 
Domenico Montanaro, NPR News, Washington. The preliminary estimate from the Labor Department shows the U.S. added even more jobs this spring than first reported. NPR's Scott Horsley reports it's another indication of a strong labor market. Every month, the Labor Department tallies how many jobs there are in the country by surveying a sample of employers. Then, once a year, the department revises that job count using more complete information from nearly every business in the country. An early look at this year's revision shows there were 462,000 more payroll jobs in March than initially reported. Private sector businesses employed 571,000 more workers, while there were fewer government jobs than in the original count. This year's revision is larger than usual, which suggests the challenges of keeping track of the job market as it rebounds from the deep pandemic recession. The new numbers, once finalized, will be added to the government's official job tally early next year. Scott Horsley, Impair News, Washington. Google and a team of researchers have hit on what they say may be an effective way of helping people be less affected by misinformation. The experiments researchers showed people videos that explained why using emotionally charged language was more likely to persuade them to believe false claims. Researchers found that when those people were later tested, they were better able to distinguish those false claims. It's known as pre-bunking. On Wall Street, the Dow is up 59 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston City Councilor and candidate for Suffolk County DA Ricardo Arroyo is denying wrongdoing after a report that he was investigated for possible sexual assaults when he was a teenager but never charged. WBUR's Deborah Becker has more. Arroyo says he was not aware of investigations into two separate assault allegations that a Boston Globe report says occurred more than a decade ago. I was never questioned by Boston public school officials, the Boston Police Department, or anyone relative to any such investigations. Arroyo says he's done nothing wrong. So just to be clear, I've never sexually assaulted anyone in my life. A spokesperson for Suffolk County DA Kevin Hayden, who's running against Arroyo in next month's primary, says the office does not release sexual assault investigation files. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Deborah Becker. MBTA officials say repairs on the Orange Line are on schedule. The line is shut down for 30 days total for safety upgrades and track work. T General Manager Steve Poftak says so far there's been minimal congestion from the shutdown and from the shuttle buses on the roads now to replace the subway service. He says there seem to be fewer people traveling than normal. One of the key elements of it going relatively smooth, smoothly is reduced traffic along the shuttle routes. I want to ask people to continue to avoid those routes when they're driving. Poftax says ridership on the commuter rail lines near the Orange Line subway have been increased during the shutdown. A four-year-old boy who fell from a fourth-story window in Dorchester has died. The child fell from a window of an apartment building on American Legion Highway last Wednesday. District Attorney Kevin Hayden confirmed the boy's death today. Investigators are still trying to determine how he got out of the window. President Biden's decision to cancel some student loan debt is drawing reaction from Massachusetts political leaders. Governor Charlie Baker says it is not the right thing to do. He says it's not fair to people who spent their own money or their family's money to get a degree because they get nothing from the president's plan. On the other side of the debate, Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, she's been pushing for student debt relief. Presley says President Biden is delivering life-changing and long-overdue relief for people. In the forecast, partly cloudy overnight tonight, dry, should be a nice night, about 68 for a low. And then mostly sunny and dry again tomorrow, same for Friday, maybe for Saturday and Sunday too. Should climb to the mid-80s tomorrow, the upper 80s on Friday, and then the heat pulls back a bit for the weekend. 79 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. WBUR supporters include Paycom, a tool for HR and payroll. 
designed for productivity, allowing employees to perform their HR and payroll tasks in a single software. Learn more at paycom.com radio. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. President Biden is canceling student debt. Not all of it. Up to $10,000 of federal student loan debt may soon be forgiven for borrowers who make under $125,000 per year. That figure goes up. It is doubled to $20,000 for those who got a Pell Grant, which is based on need. And payments for federal student loans will now remain paused through the end of the year. Biden made the announcement today. Here's what my administration is going to do provide more breathing room for people so they have less burden by student debt and, quite frankly, to fix the system itself. Well, the job of administering all this falls to the U.S. Department of Education, so we have called the head of that department, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona. Welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here with you. I'm curious how you got to this number, $10,000 or 20000 as we said, if you, if you received a Pell Grant. They're nice round numbers, but as you know, some argue it should be zero, that the federal government doesn't need to do this. Others say it should be way bigger, that the government needs to cancel all the outstanding student debt. Sure. You know, th- this is one of those, uh, similar to school reopening, you have to go with what you know is going to work to help American people, and you're going to have to move aggressively on that. Um, we're proud of the announcement today of $20,000 in debt cancellation for those who qualify for Pell, 10000 for those who are non-Pell recipients uh, with salaries under $125,000. Uh, we know um, you know, 90% of the relief dollars are going to go to people making under $75,000. So the goal here is really to make sure that our borrowers are not worse off after the pandemic than they were before, and we feel targeted assistance uh, using those numbers uh, and using the qualifications that we have are the way to do that. How many people could be affected? Well, you know, we know uh, across the country, 43 million uh, have loans out there. And we think, you know, up to 40 percent of that uh, could be totally canceled. So 20 million Americans can learn, uh, have learned today that their entire debt can be canceled. Um, we're, we're really proud of that. And uh, we know that it's one way to make sure we're helping Americans as we help small businesses during the pandemic. Uh, we're invest- reinvesting in Americans here. With this, uh, um, a lot of those 43 million people will be wondering when, when am I going to get this help? Mm-hmm. What's the answer? Yeah, that's a million dollar question today. You know, it's really important that uh, folks know that we're also improving a system that was broken and that was antiquated. Uh, the Federal Service uh, uh, Loan Administration has really gone through some overhaul to, to make the process smoother. So what we're asking folks to do is visit studentaid.gov slash debt relief and um, sign up for automated emails so that more information can come. We know uh, many people have questions today about whether they're eligible, how they do it. We're going to make this process as simple as possible. There will be a, an attestation uh, process that's going to be pretty simple. Um, but we also know that for 8 million borrowers, we have enough information now to process some of this loan they're forgiveness. They're already so on the books, yeah. They're already on the books. So studentaid.gov slash debt relief uh, to get yourself uh, – set up for an uh, automated email. All right. Let me put to you some of the questions, some of the concerns that are surfacing and allow you to respond. Um, Start with people who have maybe struggled, have saved. Maybe they just finished paying off their student loans. They're going to be mad as as heck today. What do you say to them? Well, look, you know, again, this is very targeted. 
to help address the impacts of the pandemic. Um, we recognize some folks just finished paying their loans off right before the pandemic, but everybody knows someone that's uh, buried in loan debt. Everyone knows someone that's struggling post-pandemic. And, you know, if we help uh, folks in, in the community so that they uh, reduces the, the chances of them going into default, everybody wins. It, Understood. It but just to be clear, there's nobody grandfathered into this. No, this is uh, for those who have loans now. Again, it's the goal is to make it out of the pandemic no worse off than you were before the pandemic. So this is targeted relief based off uh, pandemic, and, and we want to make sure that people can get back on their feet after the pandemic. Yeah. What about questions being raised? We all know that student debt is disproportionately held by people of color. President Biden acknowledged as much in his remarks today. Anything you or I, as education secretary, to target the, the roots of that inequity? Certainly. Well, well, let me tell you first, you know, blacks are two times more likely, black Americans are two times more likely to be Pell recipients. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, they're more eligible now for the uh, $20,000 versus the $10,000. And um, we know that one out of every four black Americans will receive total debt cancellation after today's announcement. But that's not good enough because we have a broken system. So what we're really proud of and what we're working really hard to communicate to the American people is that we're fixing a broken system. We fixed a public service loan forgiveness program that had a 98% denial rate before we, uh, the president came in office. We've provided over $10 billion in loan relief there. And with regard to equity, income-driven repayment uh, changes that we're making now will make it so that undergraduates won't have to pay more than 5% of their income on uh, loans, um, paying back loans, which is a change from 10%, right. which means that they're not going to be tethered in debt or unable to move on in life because of their uh, loans uh, for school. So you're trying to come at this from different directions. We what, are. what about, you know, the, the, the big picture problem that student debt is massive because college tuition is massive. Anything you can do, anything you're thinking about that makes higher ed less expensive in the first place. Absolutely. You know, for, for far too long, higher education has been out of reach for extremely intelligent youth who just feel like I can't get into this or I can't put my family through this debt. Um, so what we're doing is increasing accountability in higher education. I mean, you see what we've done uh, with uh, some institutions that are taking advantage of students, what we've done with borrower defense. We're fixing a broken system to make it uh, more accessible to more Americans across the country, especially those who historically haven't had an opportunity to go. So we're increasing accountability. What about, for, forgive me, we just have a few seconds left. What about sure. expanding Pell Grants? Would that have an even bigger effect than this debt cancellation? You know, we're fighting hard to double Pell. Um, and the president, you know, he's been uh, communicating the importance of doubling Pell. We're fighting for doubling Pell, PSLF, Public Service Loan Forgiveness, and just making sure the return on investment in higher education is there. And we're going after those places that are using predatory practices to go after students who are trying to chase the American dream. Okay. Their gig is up. U.S. Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona. Thanks so much for joining us. All right. Thank you. There is an unprecedented flow of weaponry moving from the U.S. to Ukraine, including another $3 billion worth announced just today. NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin got an inside look at how the U.S. is managing the logistics of transporting and protecting those weapons and ammunition. Hey, Jenna. Hey, Ari. Okay, you went to Scott Air Force Base in Illinois to visit Transportation Command. What exactly is Transcom? 
So transcom is kind of exactly what it sounds like. They're the branch of the military that are in charge of transporting all the things and people that the military needs to move around the world. So I was traveling with Deputy Secretary of Defense, Dr. Kathleen Hicks. We were on this sort of whirlwind tour of the Midwest at different labs and research facilities. And DOD was eager to send this message about its focus on American innovation and competition with China. So the reasons we stopped at Transcom was first to hear more about the military aid being sent to Ukraine, but also to hear about the improvements being made to data sharing after a chaotic period of time last year, where they were really helping uh, in real time to evacuate people and uh, supplies from Afghanistan. Yeah, I think anybody who watched the Afghanistan evacuation a year ago would see lots of room for improvement. So what lessons did they say they learned that they're now applying to Ukraine? Right. So the military officials definitely were not shy about how stressful it was to respond to Afghanistan. Some of the leaders were sleeping only a couple hours of night. They were using spreadsheets, you know, calling airlines last minute. That's not to say that they weren't proud of their efforts. They gave us a fact sheet about it. They said that 7,500 civilians were being evacuated every single day for 17 days in a row. Some of them had babies on board or needed urgent medical care. You know, when you're basically using one runway in a war zone, you don't have a lot of options. That's very different from the situation in Ukraine right now. So what applies from a year ago to what they're doing at this moment? You're right. It is, it is a very different situation. Uh, they're able to send a lot of supplies to you know Poland and, and Germany. But the sheer amount of ammo, weapon systems, and more that Ukraine is demanding is this massive logistical challenge that you can sort of take lessons from. Transcom officials were excited about the new data sharing programs that they're using because it makes it easier for different commands to see everything that's going on. It makes it easier for them to sort of make requests to private sector companies in advance. And now, in a way, as it's gone on, this war has gotten a bit more predictable, which makes it easier to help. Basically, Ukraine needs a certain amount of ammo. Transcom knows that they're going to need to resupply. So they're actually sending some large ships now in anticipation. It is slower, but these ships can carry a whole lot more stuff. That predictability, those slow ships traveling long distances, seems like it would make this a target for Russian attacks. Is that a concern? Absolutely. There's, of course, the reality of physical attacks. That's a huge concern in war. But at the same time, Transcom is also worried about cyber attacks here at home. That's something they're thinking about a lot. If you remember that oil pipeline ransomware attack here in the U.S. last spring, that disrupted fuel supplies to practically the entire East Coast for a couple days. That didn't directly affect Transcom. One of the senior officials told me that they used that attack, though, as a test case to think about what they'd do if they did lose access to fuel, some of the different routes that they'd be forced to take. I also got the chance to speak with Transcom's top cyber and intelligence officials, and I pretty much asked them, you know, we've been hearing so frequently about potential retaliatory cyber attacks from Russia. Is that still a huge concern to them, particularly for transportation of supplies? And what are they doing about it? Here's what Transcom's chief information officer, Patrick Grimsley, said about it. I think the, you, even across the commercial sector, everywhere you're seeing that scanning, probing, looking for vulnerabilities, uh, you just haven't seen a lot of the big impact things going after them. That doesn't mean that they're not trying, they're not looking, or they're not uh, gaining their accesses that they need to use at a time, place, and choosing. As a result, you know, Transcom is trying to proactively work with companies and the DOD requires certain cybersecurity standards from its contractors. But Grimsley acknowledged their job is to mitigate risk. They can't actually eliminate it. That's NPR cybersecurity correspondent Jenna McLaughlin. Thanks a lot. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered. 
Uvalde, Texas, three months after the mass shooting in an elementary school. That's coming up on WBOR's All Things Considered. On Wall Street, stocks posted modest gains today. The Dow and the S&P snapped a three-day slide. The Dow rose nearly a fifth of 1%, 60 points, to close at 32,969. S&P gained nearly 0.30% to finish at 41.41. The Nasdaq pulled in about 0.40% to end the session at 12,432. Rhode Island-based CVS Health is haggling with its insurance companies over who should pay for lawsuits CVS has settled with state and local governments over the opioid epidemic. Some of the pharmacy chain's insurers say they should not have to pay because their policies only cover personal injury. CVS says the insurance companies are breaching contract. Bloomberg estimates CVS could owe up to $22 billion in legal settlements. It's 519. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sunbug Solar, offering solar and battery storage renewable energy solutions for your home or business. Learn how you can build a resilient future at sunbugsolar.com. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, where the Summer of Love event is underway, featuring the all-wheel drive Subaru Crosstrek. Citysidesubaru.com. Pretty pleasant out there right now. Should be through the evening hours. Tonight, partly cloudy, light breezes again around 68 degrees. Tomorrow, sunshine, temperatures in the mid-80s. Friday, more sunshine, a little higher temperature in the upper 80s. Sunday, or Saturday and Sunday should be a little bit cooler, but sunny skies. This is WBUR, 79 degrees now. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from MGM, presenting 3,000 Years of Longing, a film from George Miller, director of Mad Max Fury Road, starring Idris Elba and Tilda Swinton, playing only in movie theaters August 26th. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Juana Summers in Uvalde, Texas. Today marks three months since the deadly shooting here at Robb Elementary School. It's the deadliest shooting ever at a Texas public school. And if you ask how the community is doing at this point... In a way, it's still reeling. I mean, we're still trying to, to get through this and, and figure out how to, how to cope. And people are still hurting and... I think this is going to go on for a long, a long time, really. That's Vince DiPiazza, Uvalde's city manager. He's one of the few city leaders we've been able to speak with while reporting in the city this week. Since the shooting, damning reports have emerged about the police response and how long it took to confront and subdue the gunmen. DiPiazza said he couldn't get into specifics about ongoing investigations into that response, but he was candid about what the process of trying to move through this tragedy has been like. I asked him what he thought the rest of the country should understand about what Uvalde's like today. I think any community is more complicated than, than the headlines would show. But, uh, you know, the, the dynamics are always a lot more complicated than that. And people are more complicated than that. Uh, it's, it's, hard to, it's hard to capture the soul of a of a community in, in, in that. And I do just want to ask, I mean, we're talking to you because you're the city manager here, but you, you've also lived here for seven plus years. How have you been wrapping your head around all of this? How are you doing personally? Mm, I would say it's pretty high stress. I would say 
personally, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing about as well as anybody else. You know, uh, there's a lot to deal with here, and and there's this big cloud that's over over us all because of the incident. But we still have to do the things that we have to do. We still have to pick up the garbage. We still have to you know, take care of the parks. We still have to fix streets and water lines and all that kind of stuff that you do as a city, and all that in the environment of of the aftermath of the event. There's a lot of sadness, for sure. From your purchase, city manager, what's your top priority now in terms of helping the community continue to move forward from something so awful? Well, we have to deal with the negative aspects of the event. That's sort of on our plate right now. It's not, obviously the law enforcement response is a big deal. And that's what's generated probably the most negative uh, publicity and most negative feeling here locally. Um, so we've, you know, we've launched an internal investigation. Um, that in itself uh, has been fairly difficult because there are several investigations going on. And if you know about the law enforcement response, then you know that there were a bunch of agencies present. And so the dynamic's pretty complicated, but I'm only responsible and can only be responsible for the people that work for the city. And so we felt it necessary to, to try to do an investigation into the actions of our own people on that scene. And that's got to run its course. There's so much about this that is distressing and so much about this that seems not to have gone very well. <laughs> Um, that's probably an understatement, but we have to get this part right. We have to get to the bottom of it, and 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 we're staying out of it. The, the, we hired a, a private investigator. You would you would probably say. Um, whereas in in a, in the small towns I've been in in the past, um, when we had some high level police issues to investigate, we would typically call the state police, Texas Rangers. Well, they're heavily involved in this, and that was not that didn't would not have seemed to be a wise wise approach. So. So we've gone completely outside, and we're, we're leaving it in, in that person and his group's hands. Um, what has the city government been able to do to help people? We've talked to people who are concerned about financial assistance. To what degree is the city government or, your, or you all involved in that? There have been some questions about that, and we've heard uh, that certain people weren't getting the assistance they thought they needed. Um, I believe that's being taken care of, but at this point, the city's pretty much out of that. That's been uh, mostly not necessarily by choice, but uh, the state has its plan, and then it's probably better for for anyway for us not to be the the handlers of that money. And so, the local nonprofits that are set up to do things like that can can handle that part of it. As we've been talking to people, a number of people have told us that this town has been changed forever by what happened on May 24th, that some of the divisions and deep wounds that have been created, people told us they don't think they can ever be healed. What do you make of that? I understand. I understand it. Um, it, it right now, from where I sit, I can, I can see that. Uh, is this the thing that's that you know when you hear the name of Uvalde, <laughs> is this the thing that that is instantly going to be in people's memories? You know, uh, and I think that's going to be the case for a long time. Uh, and there's a lot more to this town than that. And I, but yeah, the the wounds are going to be deep. I don't think closure is possible. Uh, but at some point, you you kind of have to learn to live with it.
I know that there is a lot that cannot be said about the investigation, but one of the reasons we wanted to be here now is because this town's about to start another school year in the public schools. I know some folks are already doing homeschool. Some of the Catholic schools folks have already headed back. Is there anything you can say about as the person who oversees police about anything that's changed that kids might see when they go back to school? I I have to imagine parents are feeling all kinds of ways about sending their children back. uh, Yeah, this is a, this is a thing here. And, and the issue of sending your kids to school and, and uh, and kids are pretty resilient. It's, it's, you know, I think the parents are, are, are worrying primarily and, and I'm a grandpa now, but um, I can understand that. But I think about that. And so what are you going to see different? The school district I know is working on, on, uh, physical security things like building fences and things like that. Um, There'll be increased law enforcement presence from school district, from the police department, our police department, and from the state police. Uh, It needs to be noticeable, but I hope it's not overbearing. I I don't know know how far it will go, but we can harden targets. We can put law enforcement in schools. We can teach the kids how to, you know, what to do when the event occurs. That's all after the fact. This kid that did this um, was a troubled, troubled young man, and he left clues. He left clues along the way. I think as a society, I think we're smart enough to figure this out. But any intervention in an earlier stage is going to, at least has the potential to make somebody's life better over the long haul. We, we need to figure out how to nudge these, these young folks off this destructive path. And I, you know, again, I think we, I think we have the knowledge to do this. Whether we have the will, the political will, and the willingness to commit any resources to it, that I don't know. Well, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. I, I hope we get to come back and cover something that's not this one day. Yeah, I hope uh, you'll become, you'll come back to cover some of the good stuff. We've been speaking to parents and kids who were impacted by the shooting at Robb Elementary. You'll hear those voices in the coming days as the community prepares for the start of a new school year. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered, the U.S. was seen as a safe haven for persecuted writers. The knife attack on Salman Rushdie has changed that. Now some exiled writers are wondering just how safe the U.S. is. That story's still to come. Pretty nice weather into the evening hours tonight. Partly cloudy, light breezes again around 68 degrees. Tomorrow, sunny in the mid-80s. Friday, more sunshine. Should be in the upper 80s, then sunny and cooler over the weekend. Fenway Park tonight. Brian Bayo does the pitching honors for the middle game of the three-game Sox set with Toronto. It'll be Jose Barrios for the Jays. The Sox have lost four of their last five games. 79 degrees now in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, committed to delivering Internet service over a gig designed to power your devices while fitting your budget. More at Xfinity.com gig. 
Ukrainians are about to mark their Independence Day, six months after they were forced to fight to keep that independence alive. President Zelensky is warning that Vladimir Putin could mark the day with, quote, something particularly nasty, something particularly cruel. What lies ahead for Ukraine? I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Iran is reportedly denying any connections to infrastructure facilities in Syria that the U.S. military targeted yesterday after President Biden ordered the strikes against groups affiliated with Iran's Revolutionary Guard. NPR's Franco Ordonez has more on the situation. Colonel Joe Buccino, a spokesman for U.S. Central Command, said the strikes are intended to defend U.S. forces from attacks like the ones on August 15th against U.S. personnel. He was referring to last week's attack on a U.S.-led coalition base in Syria by a number of drones. Buccino said in a statement that the United States took proportionate action intended to limit the risk of escalation and minimize the risk of casualties. NPR's Franco Ordonez, U.S. troops are deployed in Syria as part of an ongoing coalition effort to fight the Islamic State. There's been another small step toward reviving the Iran nuclear agreement. The State Department says it has responded to the latest proposal on how to do that, as we hear from NPR's Michelle Kellerman. European diplomats put what they call the final deal on the table to get the U.S. and Iran back into a deal that the Trump administration left. It would require the U.S. to lift sanctions in exchange for caps on Iran's nuclear program. Iran offered some comments, and now the State Department has sent its response to European diplomats. A State Department spokesperson says the negotiations have, quote, languished for months, and he blames Iran for the delays. Iran wanted its Revolutionary Guard Corps off a terrorism blacklist, but U.S. officials say the Iranians have dropped that unrelated demand. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. Stocks finished modestly higher on Wall Street ahead of Friday's speech from the Fed chair about how and where rate hikes are headed. The Dow gained about 59 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Advocates for immigrants and people of color are raising concerns about the MBTA's month-long shutdown of the Orange Line for safety work. Boston-based Lawyers for Civil Rights says the shutdown is inequitable and discriminatory because many people of color rely on the line. The organization is asking the federal government to investigate whether the T followed regulations that require it to analyze how service changes affect equity. The T says it's followed federal regulations and that it offers various forms of mitigation, including notification signs in multiple languages. A group trying to repeal the Massachusetts law that will allow undocumented immigrants to get a driver's license says it has more than enough signatures to get a question on this November's ballot to overturn the law. Maureen Maloney of Fair and Secure Massachusetts says more than 70,000 people signed the petitions and had different reasons for doing so concerns about voter fraud. Others felt that they're in the country illegally. They shouldn't be entitled to a driver's license. Giving a driver's license to an illegal alien would create a magnet environment and cause more illegal aliens to migrate to Massachusetts. Supporters of the new law say it will improve roadway safety and reject claims it will lead to voter fraud. A hotel project in Boston's North End is moving forward. 
After it scored a key victory, the city's zoning board of appeal voted to allow the development on Cross Street. Some North End residents wrote letters and held a rally opposing the hotel. They say they're worried about traffic and about the shadow the five-story building will cast. Developer William Calder argues the project will improve the North End by rehabbing a lot that's long been an eyesore. This corner of the neighborhood has been blighted for eight to ten years, and um, people have had enough. Those opposed to the hotel have 30 days to file an appeal. And Boston-based musicians are raising funds and awareness for Ukrainians who live through the current Russian invasion. WBR's John Bender has more. That's a Ukrainian folk tune and the country's national anthem arranged for six cellos. The recording was produced by the Boston-based nonprofit Cello Bello and includes American and Ukrainian musicians. Cello Bello executive director Robert Rund says it's also partnered with a Ukrainian organization, Kyiv Contemporary Music Days, to help financially support that country's musicians. We started this project as a musical one, and it ended up much more as a humanitarian one. Kyiv Contemporary Music Days has made a major focus of focusing on the musicians as people first. The Russian invasion of Ukraine began six months ago. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. The forecast is coming up next. The forecast, in fact, is right now. Some sunshine and fair weather clouds, light breezes through the evening. Partly cloudy tonight, right about 68 degrees again. And tomorrow should creep to the mid-80s, the upper 80s on Friday, with sunshine around both days. This is 90.9 WBUR, 79 degrees now at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital markets solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at MattressFirm.com and from the Lemelson Foundation. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. The Biden administration is giving Ukraine another $3 billion in military aid to defend itself from Russia. The announcement comes six months into a brutal war. And as diplomats struggle to get any traction for peace talks, there was more hand-wringing about that in the U.N. Security Council today, as NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres has had one small victory in his diplomatic efforts. Ukrainian ships have begun to export much-needed grain as Russia eases up on its blockade. Guterres told the Security Council about his recent visit to a Ukrainian port. Even if in a limited way, the storied port of Odessa, which had been paralyzed for months, is slowly coming to life thanks to the initiative. Guterres says that might help reduce food prices around the world, but what's most important for Ukrainians is an end to this war. The people of Ukraine and beyond need peace, and they need peace now. Peace in line with the UN Charter, peace in line with international law. On that front, there's been little movement for months now. U.N. officials are raising concerns about Russia's treatment of prisoners of war and are trying to defuse tensions around a Ukrainian nuclear power plant seized by Russia. 
U.S. Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield warns that Russia is also moving ahead with plans to annex parts of Ukraine, which she says should not be tolerated. Russia's goal is as clear as ever to dismantle Ukraine as a geopolitical entity and erase it from the world map. The big question for diplomats is whether there's any negotiated way out. I think that's the question we all, all have. Uh, right now, I don't think uh, we are too optimistic, unfortunately. Norwegian Ambassador Trina Heimerbach says she hopes the U.N. can build on the grain deal. Her British counterpart, James Kariuki, says the onus is on Russia. No, there's been a lot of diplomacy. The question for, about peace negotiations is for the Ukrainians, but the best way to end the conflict would be for Russia to withdraw its troops uh, and end its illegal occupation. Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, recently warned that there will be no further talks with Russia if it carries out show trials of Ukrainian POWs. Russia will cut itself off from the negotiations, he says. There will be no more conversations. Our country has made that clear. Today, in a video message to the Security Council, Zelensky said Russia must be held to account for its abuses in Ukraine. Russian Ambassador Vasily Nibenza tried unsuccessfully to prevent Zelensky from addressing the UN. Asked about diplomacy, he said Russia wants to meet its goals first. I would like to see uh, all uh, aims and targets of the military operation that had been set by the Russian leadership implemented. And we have, we have the negotiated uh, solution that, that would end uh, that would end that conflict, and, uh, but provided and on the conditions that the goals are, that were set are uh, implemented. African and Latin American members of the Security Council lamented the lack of real diplomacy. Kenya's ambassador, Martin Kimani, put it in stark terms. Unless the Ukraine war is stopped through dialogue and negotiation, it could be the first of a series of conflicts that future historians will name the Third World War. Africa and the rest of the world would be thrown into a mirror of the Cold War He's calling for a cessation of hostilities and respect for Ukraine's sovereignty. U.S. officials say they've seen no sign that Russia is interested in that. So for now, the U.S. is focused on strengthening Ukraine's hand with a new influx of $3 billion in security assistance. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. To keep our cool this summer, most of us are probably choosing to spend more time in air-conditioned spaces, but many people in prisons don't have that option. The U.S. Department of Justice is investigating prisons in some southern states trying to get to the root of persistent violence, and as Grant Blankenship of Georgia Public Broadcasting explains, they might take a look at the heat. In a cell phone video shared by a Georgia prison rights activist, a group of mostly shirtless men are bent over a big black cart. I just came in here. It ain't been number 30 seconds. As the camera pulls back, you see it's an ice cooler parked on a prison block. It's been one minute. Dana Smallwood Linton says, like these men, this is how her son is meant to stay cool in his prison. It's 90 degrees inside. How long do you think that ice is lasting? Only a quarter of Georgia's prisons are fully air-conditioned. The others are only partially cooled, maybe in a single dormitory. Linton's son is at Phillips State Prison, one of two in the Georgia system with no air conditioning at all. And while Linton says that's tough enough for her 22-year-old son, his roommate is 80. You know, he, he doesn't, he very rarely leaves his room because it's so, it's so exhausting for him to even walk from his room to the shower. 
The direct threat to physical health from heat is well documented, but prison heat presents another danger too, homicides. Phillips State Prison saw its first deaths this year in July, typically the hottest month of the year in Georgia. Two of those three July deaths were ruled homicides. That pattern of homicides peaking on the hottest days repeats itself across the Georgia prison system at least as far back as 2015. Anita Mukherjee is an assistant professor in the business school at the University of Wisconsin. She says that Georgia pattern mirrors what she found in a Mississippi study. Yeah, so the question that we started out with is what is the effect of, let's say, a hot day versus a moderate temperature day on acts of violence in prison? Mukherjee and her co-researcher Nicholas Sanders of Cornell University used some sophisticated math to isolate heat from some 52 other variables in eight years of data from the Mississippi Department of Corrections. What generates a response in violence as days averaging 80 degrees or more. On a day like that, Mukherjee says it could easily top 100 degrees inside a prison when there's no air conditioning or places to cool down. That problem is concentrated at prisons in 13 states in the South and Southwest. Mukherjee and Sanders say when a day in prison is that hot, expect about 20 percent more acts of extreme violence than on a temperate day. Annually, that's about 4,000 violent acts in prisons across the country. Correction means correct deviant behavior. It doesn't mean lock and feed, torture and torment. During the long career of Mississippi Department of Corrections Commissioner Berlin Kane, federal courts have found that even just the threat of illness and violence from heat is a civil rights violation. And so then pretty soon it violates the Eighth Amendment, you could say. The Eighth Amendment to the Constitution protects against cruel and unusual punishment. The Federal Department of Justice has been looking for Eighth Amendment violations in southern prisons, including those run by Kane, for years. Yeah, they've already said it about it being hot, hot, hot. We know it's hot. And Kane says that's a problem for correctional officers, too. Well, you know, some people can't stand that heat anyway, and they don't want to work in it. Prisons across the South struggle to keep even a minimally safe number of correctional officers. Georgia's staffing is down by nearly 40 percent. 100-degree workplaces don't help. So Kane is installing air conditioning in Mississippi's infamous Parchman Prison. But the main thing is the violence is down. So that means it's a safer place to work, so that's good. His aim is to do the same for the entire Mississippi prison system. For NPR News, I'm Grant Blankenship in Macon, Georgia. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The author Salman Rushdie has long been a tireless advocate for freedom of expression, so the vicious attack on him in western New York this month sent a chill through the community of exiled writers. Now some are questioning their safety in the U.S. Jim Zaroli reports. For dissident Iranian writer Masi Alinejad, hearing about the attack on Rushdie came as a terrible shock. Oh my God, when I heard that, I was screaming. Like I was just running corner to corner in my safe house and shouting and just calling my husband that I cannot believe this is happening in America, in New York. Alinajad has become a target of extremists for speaking out against Sharia law, and she had come to see the United States as a safe place. America is like a safe heaven for those who want to express themselves, for those who want to 
speak up against tyranny. She no longer feels so safe. Last year, the U.S. government foiled an alleged plot to kidnap her by Iranian intelligence officers. Another man was recently arrested outside her Brooklyn home with an AK-47. Then came the Rushdie attack. In the decades since Iran's Ayatollah Khomeini issued a fatwa against him for his depiction of Muhammad in the book The Satanic Verses, Rushdie has become an eloquent advocate of free speech. I mean, many of us who join this field grew up being sort of galvanized by his case and, and what had happened to him. Um, and in the decades since, he really has been this, um, you know, stalwart defender of free expression for other writers at risk. Karin Deutsch-Karlaker directs the Free Expression at Risk program at PEN America. She says there's been a spike in online threats to writers in the U.S. in recent years. Still, she says they rarely metastasize into actual physical attacks. What just happened to Salman Rushdie is something, I can't remember the last time that something similar happened to a literary writer in the U.S. Writers in the U.S. routinely make public appearances with little or no security. The Rushdie attack could change that. An official of one venue that frequently hosts writers says it's rethinking its security policies. But the official, who wasn't authorized to speak publicly, said, unless you want to make every event like going to the airport, you can't stop someone determined to do violence from running up on stage. Exiled Syrian poet Osama Alomar says he has long felt very safe in the U.S., but the Rushdie attack is a reminder that the U.S. is an open country and bad people can sometimes get in. It's funny to say it, but I used to say it when I was in Syria that I'm, I'm worried about freedom of speech in Syria. Now I'm worried about that even here in America. Alomar says writers need to resist efforts to stifle freedom of expression. As a writer, as an artist, we can do nothing without freedom of speech. We can do nothing. Masi Alinajad agrees. She says after the Rushdie attack, she has no choice but to redouble her efforts to speak out. So at the end of the day, I tell myself that I should feel miserable because of all these threats. I have to keep fighting against tyranny and make my oppressors feel miserable. I choose the second one. In fact, she says her dream now is to speak at the Chautauqua Institution on the same stage where Rushdie was stabbed this month. For NPR News, this is Jim Zaroli. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR, the new book Haven, in which three Irish monks in the Middle Ages choose to live a life of isolation on a rocky island. That's coming up next. Tonight at Fenway Park, Red Sox will put Brian Bayo on the mound for game two of three against the Toronto Blue Jays. It'll be Jose Barrios for the Jays. Sox have lost four of their last five games. A glimmer of hope today for Red Sox fans who've just seen enough this season. Major League Baseball has released next season's schedule. The season opener is going to be March 30th. It'll happen at Fenway Park against Baltimore. The regular season will also end against Baltimore. That'll be at Camden Yards on October 1st. Red Sox and Yankees won't meet until June 9th in the Bronx. This is 90.9 WBUR, 79 degrees now at 549. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Back Bay Life Science Advisors. 
integrated strategy consulting and investment banking for Biopharma, MedTech, and their investors. BBLSA.com. Technology is giving employers a means to gauge who is doing how much when. And it's already impacting things like how much and when people get paid. This is one of the biggest expansions of employer power in generations. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's Today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Emma Donahue tends to write about people in a tough spot. Her best-selling novel, Room, centered on a mother and her son in a forced imprisonment. In her new novel, Haven, three Irish monks in the Middle Ages choose to live a life of isolation on a rocky island. They land on a place called the Great Skellig. It's a real island that Donahue actually boated past several years ago. Well, by the end of that boat ride, I had the whole thing in my head because I was struck immediately by logistical questions, you know. Um, I was seized by the question of how they survived, and I thought, how many of them would there be? Well, um, I thought I I need there to be three of them because of the Trinity, because the men who settled on this island were absolutely fixed on, on their goal of getting away from the world and founding an absolutely pure monastic retreat. So I imagined three men, young, middle and old, And by the end of the boat ride, um, I had the whole, you know, how the action and the drama might play out and how it might all, of course, go horribly wrong. This island is populated with tens of thousands of birds. And you go into incredible detail about the bird life. Cormorants, puffins, auks, which are now extinct. Will you read one paragraph where you sort of describe this in detail? Sure, sure. Here we go. Um... Trian, the young monk, is is, um, on the island. Scrutinising the rock faces below, Trian counts eggs, just out of curiosity. He's found that a kittiwake will lay two or three in a tiny nest, whereas a cormorant has a huge nest with as many as four, pale blue. Those are the only eggs the monks agree are inedibly foul. Anytime Trian's delved into the burrow of a puffin or shearwater, he's found only a single egg. Once he encountered a sheer water in the daytime and it spat a stinking oil at him. Great auks and guillemots, they too lay one pointed conical egg left carelessly on a ledge. Were you always interested in birds or were all of these details things that you had to learn for this book? They were all things I needed to learn for this book. Um, my, my writing is not very um, uh, time efficient. I was once scolded by someone on a panel. She said, look, if you research 18th century London, you should get like five books out of that. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm imagining you going through the Museum of Natural History archives, taking notes on the colors of the eggs of the various birds. It's true. It's true. Um, I, for each book, I seem to enjoy the stimulus of going to an entirely new place. And I soon realized that this was a kind of a colonial story, only, you know, the natives, as it were, are uh, the, bir- the birds in this case. And the, the monks approached the, those birds in, in just the same way as, as people have been, you know, hounded out of their territories. Um, and of course, you know, I, I couldn't be unaware of the sort of um, environmental resonances of this story nowadays. Uh, while I was writing it, I remember there were headlines about, oh, maybe we'll settle on Mars. That'll be a solution to our problems. And it just struck me as such a sick joke that, you know, if we trashed this perfect Earth, people really imagined we could do better um, on a harsh planet where we'd need to live in a bubble. So, you know, yeah. I thought I thought settling on an island was actually a very good um, parallel with that kind of, you know, wishful thinking about whether a, a fresh start 
could save us from ourselves when, of course, we yeah. always bring our own baggage. I was rereading the New York Times review of your best-selling novel, Room, which became a hit movie. Uh, and one line in the review stood out to me, which was, Room is both a jail and a haven. And here we are 12 years later, where you have a new novel called Haven, which is about a different kind of jail. When did you notice that you were returning to some familiar themes? I know, I'm a little sheepish about that. Um, I blame the children, Ari. Uh, <laughs> you know, our kids are 18 and 15 now. And since they've been born, um, it's not that I always write directly about parenthood, but I very often write these sort of tight little domestic knots in which um, something can be can be seen as either idyllic and cozy or mm -hmm. as nightmarishly confined. You also keep uh, exploring these themes of faith and obedience. What interests you about them such that you return again and again? Well, I suppose as, a, as an Irish writer and a lapsed Catholic, you know, I'm aware that I grew up in a tradition which had many beauties. You know, I, I loved all that. The music, the, the ritual of confession, I found utterly thrilling. You walk away feeling tingling with with cleanliness, you know, as if you've been magically wiped clean. So there was a lot I loved about Catholicism. And then when I left it, um, I suppose I remained fascinated by the sort of the pros and cons of it, what it offers. And again, mm. I'm trying to show that, yes, you know, zealotry and extremism uh, can, can really um, lead one completely off the rails psychologically. But equally, having a very strong faith would bear you up, I imagine, and give you all sorts of consolations, especially if your life was nasty, brutish and short. You yeah. Know? And in some ways, I think these, these studies of religion, I think for me, they're kind of parallel with, with my writing life because I got absolutely obsessed with whatever I'm writing about and nothing could stand between me and it. And I suspect I would, I wouldn't sell my kids for it, but um, uh, you know, there, there's moments when you're wondering, you know, if, if there's a fire, do I go upstairs and tell the kids first or do I grab my folder of um, ideas for future books? You know, I'm aware of those seeds of, of, um, of obsession in myself. Did it change your experience returning to these themes of confinement and isolation during the pandemic when everyone was relatively isolated <laughs> and following strict rules and experiencing some version of this themselves? Yeah, well, I, I did get so bored during COVID that I remember thinking I that the character of Ma in Room was perhaps even more heroic than I realized in managing to keep things fun. Because I, I think I would have settled into, you know, grim boredom quite early on in the process of raising a child in a locked room. Um, <laughs> but, but, but to answer your question, I think... Um, this book was particularly enjoyable to write during the pandemic because it was just such a long distance to travel in both time and space. And the monks had such concrete problems, which were not my problems. You know, there I was at home, you know, obsessing on Twitter over, you know, um, when would vaccines be made available? And they were wondering, would they live through the night? You know, would their, mm. would their bedding blow away in a storm? So it was highly concrete and yet big existential questions as well. You know, like when, when, when Art says to the monks, you know, does it matter whether we live or die? You know, it's all to the glory of God. We don't matter. Um, so, so, yes, it couldn't have been a better escape. Um, it's funny, you, you might imagine that only an escapist storyline is an escape. But actually, a very engrossing dramatic storyline that's far, far from where you are is, is, is the most um, wonderfully distracting occupation during, you know, the tedium of having to stay home. You painted such a vivid image of this island that I had a very clear picture of it in my mind. And then I reached the end of the novel, read the author's note and realized, oh, 
I have actually seen this very island on screen. <laughs> that was a bit of a surprise. Yes, the Star Wars island, I know. And, and the funny thing about that, those films is that they couldn't wipe out the puffins because there are so many of them. So they have to include the puffins in the film and just give them a different name. This is where Luke Skywalker is, I don't know. Yes, it's Luke Skywalker's hideout, I would say. And I love the idea that the birds were just so plentiful that they had to be included in the film. There was actually no way to film that landscape without those birds. Emma Donahue's new novel is Haven. Thank you for talking with us about it. It's been a great pleasure, Ari. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Avast, a global cybersecurity company with more than 435 million users. Avast is dedicated to helping people take control of their safety and privacy online. Learn more at avast.com. And from Athena Health, creating connected healthcare technology designed to improve patient outcomes and increase efficiency of healthcare practices and organizations. Learn more at athenahealth.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief, Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston, 77 degrees now. We should have fair weather clouds around tonight, starlit skies with only a thin sliver of moon. Tomorrow, wake up just before sunrise, and you should see Venus shimmering right by the moon's crescent. Daytime tomorrow should be lovely, sunny and warmer. Highs in the mid-80s, Friday sunny and even warmer, about 88 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR, again 77 degrees in Boston. The time is 5.59. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app, or WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Ukraine celebrates 31 years of independence from the Soviet Union today and also marks six months since President Putin launched a full-scale invasion. Ukraine has destroyed many Russian ammunition depots, forcing Russia to be more selective in what it bombs. There are some of our positions they aren't shelling at all because they are currently shelling priority targets. I'm Lisa Mullins. That story is coming up on WBUR. Also, what's behind the teachers' strike in Ohio? Severe drought from California to Texas to the Bay State, where farmers are working overtime to irrigate and supplement absent rainfall. Some streams and ponds they've been using have been drying up. And tonight on Marketplace, a common thread among stores is that inventory is through the roof, and all that stockpiling has become a business problem. I have a lot of inventory, and I just have been honestly trying to bleed through that instead of buying more and sitting on it. That's coming up. It's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The Justice Department has made public a long-sought internal memo from the 2019 year about whether the evidence presented in special counsel Robert Mueller's report supported obstruction of justice charges against then-President Donald Trump. 
NPR's Ryan Lucas explains the documents being released after an appeals court ordered it be made public. The nine-page memorandum dated March 24, 2019, was put together by two senior Justice Department officials, Stephen Engel and Ed O'Callaghan, for then-Attorney General William Barr. It evaluated the evidence from special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into possible ties between the Trump campaign and Russia. The memo concluded that the evidence was not sufficient to establish that Trump obstructed justice, and it recommended that Barr decline such a prosecution. The Justice Department fought against releasing this memo, arguing that it was part of its deliberative process. Ultimately, a district court judge and an appeals court panel disagreed and ordered its release. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. The school board in Uvalde, Texas, is meeting tonight to discuss firing their school police chief. Texas Public Radio's Camille Phillips reports the meeting comes three months after the chief was incident commander during the school shooting at Robb Elementary. Pete Ararando was singled out by state officials early on as the commander who held officers back from confronting the gunman for more than an hour. But the Uvalde school superintendent waited a month to place Ararando on leave as calls grew louder for the chief to be fired. The school board originally scheduled a hearing to discuss terminating Ararando in July, but that hearing was canceled after his attorney said he was entitled to due process. State lawmakers investigating the shooting found law enforcement failures at all levels, but the Uvalde School District's active shooter plan said Ararando was supposed to be in charge. I'm Camille Phillips in San Antonio. The FDA is hoping a complete review of new versions of the Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccines by the middle of next week. NPR's Joel Palco reports that means updated vaccines could be available as a booster shots as soon as Labor Day. The current versions of the Pfizer and Moderna COVID vaccines are based on the original strain of the virus that emerged from Wuhan, China. Since then, variants have appeared. The latest is Omicron BA5. It accounts for about 88% of the infections in the United States. The updated boosters are modified to better protect people from severe illness and death from BA5, although evidence they can do so is based on lab results and not real-world experience. If FDA does give emergency use authorization of the vaccines, they must still receive a thumbs up from the CDC before they will be distributed. Joe Palka, NPR News. Stocks on Wall Street showed little reaction to President Biden's announcement about student debt relief today. The Dow was up 59 points to 32,969. The Nasdaq closed up 50 points. This is... NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. Boston City Councilor Ricardo Arroyo says he is remaining in the race for Suffolk County District Attorney. Yesterday, the Boston Globe reported Arroyo was investigated for two sexual assaults when he was a teenager and he was never charged. Today, the councilor said he's never sexually assaulted anyone and he says he was never informed of either investigation until the Globe contacted him this year. These complaints, when they were made, were investigated. And I think folks understand that there is a bar that's required just for probable cause to bring these cases forward. Arroyo says whoever leaked the records about the cases to the newspaper did so to affect his campaign against the current DA, Kevin Hayden. Hayden's office says it does not release sexual assault investigation files. Massachusetts Congressman Stephen Lynch is making it known that he wants to be the next chair of the House Oversight Committee on Capitol Hill. 
Lynch sent a letter today to congressional colleagues about his interest in the top spot in the investigative panel. Two other Democrats are also interested in running. New York Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney is the chair of the committee right now. She just lost her primary election and will leave office next year. There are shows of solidarity in Massachusetts with the people of Ukraine. Ukraine is observing its 31st Independence Day as the Russian invasion of that country hits the six-month mark today. Today, the Ukrainian flag was raised in Salem and at Boston City Hall. As WBR's Josie Guarino reports, people will gather in Boston Saturday to show that Ukraine is not alone. At least 3,000 people are expected at Boston's annual Ukrainian Independence Day Festival. Organizer Olga Lizovska says that's just the number of people who checked in on social media. It is especially important for people to show their support and to learn more about Ukraine and how it is a totally different country from Russia and how it is an independent nation that deserves the right to be sovereign. The free festival will include folk art, live music, and traditional dance. It's at Boston University Beach from 2 to 10. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Josie Guarino. Plans are moving forward to upgrade a massive concrete building in downtown Boston that houses state offices. The state announced today it's awarded a contract to redevelop the Hurley Building that's located on the corner of Cambridge and Stanford Streets. The state hopes to modernize the property that's fallen into disrepair and add laboratory and office space. In the forecast, look for a nice evening ahead, partly cloudy overnight tonight, temperatures about 68, and then for the next three or four days, boring, but in a good way, mostly sunny skies, reaching the mid-80s tomorrow, the upper 80s on Friday, pulling back to about 80 degrees over the weekend. 76 degrees now in the Boston area at 607. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Imaginable Futures, celebrating the hard work, commitment, and achievements of the one in five college students who are parents. More at imaginablefutures.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Today is Independence Day in Ukraine. 31 years ago, Ukraine split from the Soviet Union. Today also marks six months to the day since Russian President Vladimir Putin sent troops into Ukraine to try to bring the country back into Russia's orbit. Since then, some 13 million Ukrainians have been displaced. Thousands upon thousands of troops have died on both sides in the biggest war in Europe since 1945, and today brought yet more bloodshed. I want to bring in NPR's Frank Lankfitt, who we find in the southwestern port city of Odessa. And Frank, I was going to ask how Ukraine has celebrated Independence Day, but it sounds like, in fact, it has turned into an awful day there. It has. Um, it was very supposed to be very subdued. They were trying to avoid celebrations so that there wouldn't be potential targets. But uh, President Zelensky has just announced that there was a missile strike on a rail station in the Dnipro region that's killed at least 15 people, left about 50 injured. So, you know, more violence today uh, on a day when the country would like to be celebrating. Yeah. Um, I want to put this in the broader context of how the war is going six months in, because I know you have been out talking to the military these past few days. Is Ukraine making progress on what they had promised would be a big counteroffensive? No, not at all. In fact, I'd say the counteroffensive that has been talked about has, is, hasn't materialized. And some commanders I talked to are upfront about that. You know, right now, Russia controls about 20 percent of the country in the east and the south. And when I was down here, I guess more than three months ago, I, I've been sort of struck at how limited the progress has been since I've been away. So hmm. 
Like, for instance, there was one village that NPR visited back in late April or so, and it, that time it was like four miles from the front line. Now it's maybe 11 miles from the front line, but it's still shelled every day. It used to have about 7,000 people in it. It's now about 100. And I was actually going to go visit this village maybe yesterday, I was thinking about it, but it keeps getting hit on a daily basis. Uh, so another example, I was talking to a soldier in another part. This was up in a part of the Herson region. And she said it had taken three months to take back another village. And that's because the Russians were so well dug in. Wow, I'm just doing the math. You're talking about it. that one village that's still being shelled that moved from being four miles to 11 miles from the front line. And that was the efforts of four months. Is it that Russia is just putting up such strong defenses that, that Ukraine is having trouble? Yeah, I mean, that is one reason. The Russians have actually sent, because they expected some kind of counteroffensive, they sent thousands of troops down here to reinforce their lines. But there are other reasons as well. You know, Ukrainians want to go on the offense, but it takes a lot more troops and weapons to take land than it does to defend land. And I got to say, Ukrainians are better armed than when I last saw them down here. Back in April, they were complaining they had no long-range weapons. Now they have things like these HIMARS. These are sophisticated American precision-guided rockets. They can yeah. travel more than 50 miles. We've talked about this. And what they've allowed the Ukrainians to do is knock out a lot of Russian ammunition depots. And there's a colonel I was talking to a few days ago. His name is Roman Kostenko. And he said the ammunition, that loss of ammunition, is now forcing the Russians to be a lot more judicious in their targeting. And this is what he had to say. There are some of our positions they aren't shelling at all because they are currently shelling priority targets. Earlier, they shelled along the entire front line. Now they shell in specific places. And, and what this means also, Mary Louise, is the Ukrainians can move a lot more easily to set up new lines of attacks. So a few days back, I was driving on the road and I come across a bunch of Ukrainian tanks, two mobile rocket launchers, and they were comfortably moving around to new positions. But attacking does require lots of heavy weapons, and the Ukrainians continue to say they need a lot more of them. Although the U.S. and NATO would push back and say, look, we've given Ukraine a ton of weapons already. There, there was a big announcement of yet more money today. Yeah, the numbers have been astonishing. It's billions upon billions in military aid, and it's been done at an incredible pace. And in talking to U.S. officials, they said they had to look back actually to 1973 and the Yom Kippur War to find a time when the United States armed an ally, in this case, uh, Israel back then, uh, with so much weaponry in such a short period of time. Frank, let me just step you back from the battlefield. I, I remember so well, six months ago today, we had a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mike Mullen, on NPR saying this war would represent a reordering of the world order, that this war would change NATO, would change the U.S. Has it? In some ways, yes. And in other ways, I think we need to see how this all plays out. I mean, certainly NATO and the U.S. did rally around Ukraine when, frankly, the Russians failed to take Kiev in the 72 hours roughly that they expected. And now what we've seen is NATO actually is in the process of expanding. Finland and Sweden are in the process of joining. But, you know, Mary Louise, NATO countries, they, you know, the military stocks, the treasuries are not bottomless. The various countries in Europe and elsewhere have different a variety of political priorities, inflation, climate change, China. And there's also we're waiting to see what happens in the winter when, um, you know, it could be a harsh winter without much Russian oil. So the worry here that you hear in Ukraine, especially among commanders, is there's going to be Ukraine fatigue, that the West won't give enough weapons for Ukraine to win. 
will eventually push Ukraine to go to the negotiating table with a weak hand, and they'll feel under pressure to give up land that right now they're continuing to fight really hard to win back. NPR's Frank Lankfitt reporting from the port city of Odessa on this day, Independence Day in Ukraine. Thank you, Frank. Good to talk, Mary Louise. Today was supposed to be back-to-school day in Ohio's largest school district, but just days before students were set to return to their classrooms in Columbus, Ohio, the district's teachers' union voted to strike. This came after multiple negotiations by the Board of Education, and the union failed to produce a contract. Regina Fuentes is one of those teachers striking. She has taught in Columbus City Schools for more than 20 years, and she's a spokesperson for the union. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having me. Paint a picture of the conditions that you and other teachers are working in. What made things so extreme that you decided to strike? Well, you know, we have been pushing the district to fix our old buildings for a very long time. Um, We're dealing with buildings that are way too hot in the warm months and way too cold in the cold months. And, you know, we have reported problems of bad plumbing, doors that don't lock, windows that don't shut, or uh, lock or open. And, you know, we're just tired of waiting. We want them to be held accountable when it comes to fixing these problems and not just make empty promises. Over the more than 20 years that you've been teaching in Columbus City Schools, what kind of impact have you seen this have on students? I mean, you just can't imagine, you know, and getting into class size is having a class full of 36 kids and it's 90 degrees inside the classroom and you know all they're they're not focused they're going to start passing out and you know they can't focus on what's happening or if it's too cold you know they're they're worried about wrapping up in blankets and extra coats they're not they're not working working on um the academics and it really does take a toll on them All over the country, teachers have been calling attention to difficult working conditions, especially given the pressures of the pandemic, remote schooling, pressure on curriculum, teacher resignations. How does what you're experiencing in Columbus, Ohio, compare to what you're hearing from colleagues in other areas? So what I think it speaks to is just the overall burnout. You know, teachers, I think we just for forever kind of make the situation as best as we possibly can. And, you know, we're just kind of like throw ourselves into it. And, you know, we just, we do it for the kids, but it comes a point where the, everything boils over and you just can't take being um, not appreciated anymore. And so if we are going to save public education, we have to start making an investment in retaining teachers and taking care of these old buildings. And this not just happening in Columbus, Ohio. This is happening all over the nation. It's also been a difficult time for parents and students. Do you fear that your decision to strike could add to the stresses on them? Well, look, you know, I understand that this is a difficult situation, and we we take that into consideration. But I hope that we're showing with this sacrifice, you know, of losing our pay, losing our health insurance while we're on this strike. I hope that we are demonstrating to them just how passionate we are about getting these schools fixed and, you know, getting this change. And I also hope that, you know, the parents see that we're trying to set a pathway for the future, that, you know, it's we're not just going to take the status quo and accept that they might 
get to these things. We want them to be held accountable. They hold teachers accountable. They hold students accountable. It's time for the elected officials to be held accountable to do what the public wants. You are talking about a national problem of deprioritizing public schools and teachers. Is this something that any one labor agreement can fix? You know, it could be it could be the start. You know, I don't see us being the one thing that changes the the whole nation. But you know what? If I help my kids have better um, situations and better working or uh, learning conditions, then, you know, it was all worth it. It was all worth it. So what kind of conversations have you been having with students and parents as you walk the picket line? Oh, our parents and our, our students, they're proud of us, you know, because we one of the reasons why we're even you know pushing for this is because we watch them we're on the front lines every day watching our students suffer in these conditions that we hear their complaints we hear their cries we make the you know we fill out the 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 work orders to try and get things fixed and see things that never get fixed and so you know we've had enough so we never wanted to reach the point where we were striking, but striking seems to be the only thing that is getting their attention and letting them know we're serious. People may remember back in 2018, there was a wave of teacher strikes across the country. Right now, this seems limited. Do you expect it might catch on more broadly? Yes, I do, because, you know, workers across the nation want some respect, and this economy is not getting easier to live in, you know, and we... We deserve that respect. That's Regina Fuentes, a Columbus City Schools teacher and spokesperson for the Teachers Union. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And NPR reached out to the Columbus Board of Education but did not hear back from them before airtime. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on All Things Considered on WBUR, too little water from Massachusetts to Texas to California. On Wall Street, stocks posted modest gains today. The Dow and the S&P snapped a three-day slide. The Dow rose nearly a fifth of a percent, 60 points. It closed at 32,969. S&P gained nearly 0.30 percent to finish at 41.41. The Nasdaq pulled in about 0.40 percent to end the session at 12,432. A new life sciences manufacturing plant in Plainville, Mass., will employ about 300 people. Thermo Fisher Scientific opened the facility today. It produces a component used in gene therapy. The expansion will bring the number of the company's employees in Massachusetts to more than 3,500. It's 619. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bicon Dental Implants, offering discerning dentists and patients short implants, often avoiding surgical bone grafting procedures, 617-524-3900. And MathWorks, currently hiring for both technical and non-technical positions in their Natick headquarters. Learn more at mathworks.com careers. Tickets to WBUR City Space's fall season are now on sale featuring notable guests that include Nina Totenberg, Maggie Haberman, Jacques Pepin, and Bill McKibben. Get details at wbur.org events. In the forecast, some clouds increasing right now. Overnight tonight, temperatures should fall to about 68 degrees. And then for tomorrow, mostly sunny and dry. Same for Friday, maybe for Saturday and Sunday, too. Should climb to the mid-80s, twenty or mid that is, tomorrow. The upper 80s for Friday, then turning cooler for the weekend, right about 80 degrees. Tonight at Fenway Park, Red Sox will put Brian Bayo on the mound for Game 2 of 3 against the Toronto Blue Jays. It'll be Jose Barrios for the Jays. The Sox have lost four of their last five games. 
This is WBUR. Technology is giving employers a means to gauge who is doing how much when. And it's already impacting things like how much and when people get paid. This is one of the biggest expansions of employer power in generations. I'm Michael Barbaro. That's today on The Daily from The New York Times. Tonight at 8 on WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly. Around the country, severe droughts made worse by climate change are affecting farmers, ranchers, and homeowners. We're going to check in with reporters in three states, Massachusetts, Texas, and California. First, Jill Kaufman from New England Public Media reports the U.S. Department of Agriculture declared the drought in most of Massachusetts a natural disaster. In Granby, Massachusetts, at Red Fire Farm, some fields are looking worse than others. I mean, we have one field that we were irrigating early in the year with drip irrigation, and it was going fine. We were growing some of our early and summer cabbage there and broccoli and some kale. Ryan Voiland and his wife own the 100-plus acre farm with a retail store and a wholesale business. That particular field we were irrigating from a stream, that stream suddenly just dried up. Where he can irrigate, Voiland says, Things will grow okay, but he can't get to every field, and he's had to make some tough choices. Plants are visibly wilting because of this summer's severe drought. For many New England farmers, irrigation used to be a supplement for relatively regular rainfall. It takes Voilin an hour and a half just to set up this giant sprinkler and hose that creeps along at a really slow pace. Most days during the drought, he started watering at 4.30 in the morning, he shuts it all down around 9 at night. That's after a full day of running a farm. Most summer crop harvests in Massachusetts will be smaller this year at a time when inflation has made supplies more expensive. Fuel costs and labor are really high. Voiland and other farmers have had to raise their prices. But heat and drought are also making the peaches sweeter this year, says Ben Clark at Clarkdale Farm in Deerfield, Massachusetts. In Western and Central Mass, we, we have been in a, in a pretty severe drought. Um, it's the biggest drought in, in my memory, and my, my father's been farming for 50 years here, um, and this is the, the driest summer he's seen. Clark is president of the Massachusetts Fruit Growers Association, which is looking ahead to the apple season, big business in New England. There'll be less to harvest, Clark says, but there will be a crop. The trees in his fourth-generation orchard have been stressed But older trees have deep roots. They find water, Clark says. They're bound to do better than the new types of trees he and other fruit growers are now planting. You know, more efficiency, higher yields. Um, They're small trees with a small root system and really need the water. Um, They require it, otherwise they, they won't survive. Some welcome rain fell earlier this week. If there's more of it, it could make all the difference for the winter squash and pumpkins that usually get picked off their vines in the fall. For NPR News, I'm Jill Kaufman in Granby, Massachusetts. And I'm Mitch Borden in Marfa, Texas. This week, storms have been passing over the state, providing communities with much-needed rain. But that may just be a small reprieve as Texans continue to face the worst drought the state's seen in over a decade. For state climatologist John Nielsen-Gammon, the severity of the drought is obvious. So we've seen crop failures, reduced yields, We're seeing water restrictions in place in many areas of the state as aquifers and reservoir levels get low. 
In West Texas, months with little to no rain have left ranchers like Sarah McKenzie Evans in a tough spot. As we drive around her ranch looking for cattle, you can see cacti and mesquite are dying here. Here they are. Oh, I bet they'll move now. The landscape looks desaturated as heat waves drift on the horizon. There are only 13 cows left on the ranch, and Evan says the rest of the herd, about 250 cattle, were sent away to a feedlot months ago. Hi, girls. She starts doling out hay to the hungry black Angus cows. They've gotten used to getting hand-fed since there's little left to graze. When I visited her a few weeks ago, it had been nearly a year since I had last rained. Evans described the situation pretty quickly. Bleak. <laughs> Bleak is what comes to mind. It's, it's been hot and dry. Um, this drought is, I, I don't know, it seems like they're always terrible when you're in the middle of them. Ranchers like Evans are having to make calculated decisions to keep up with rising costs and to preserve their land. How many cows do I sell? You sell your oldest cows first. How many of my young cows do I keep? And these are all business decisions, but it feels, it feels more than a business decision. It feels like you're making decisions on things that you have a relationship with. And it all takes a toll, she says, emotionally, financially, and spiritually. I think the, the big question to me that's looming is how much longer do we have? Every week, every time we have um, one more feed bill, how much longer can I hang on? And that's, that's the real question. Evan's grandfather used to say, the meanest thing about a drought is that you don't know when it'll end. And experts are forecasting a dry fall and winter, which means Texas ranchers like Evan's could be in for some long, dry months ahead. For NPR News, I'm Mitch Borden in Marfa, Texas. I'm Aaron Stone in Los Angeles, where more than a third of water goes to outdoor irrigation, a lot of it at homes. Because of the historic drought, six million Southern California homes can water their lawns only once or twice a week. And a complete ban may come soon. Walking a lawn and tree-lined street in the lush neighborhood of Hancock Park is Damon Ayala, a patroller with the city's Water Conservation Response Unit. He's already written a citation for sprinklers being on when they shouldn't be. His unit's been called Water Cops, but Ayala prefers a different label. We're more like water educators <laughs> because our primary objective is not to fine anybody. Fines do not help us save water. We'd rather educate and get behavioral change. Ayala says fines do little to stem the flow of the biggest residential users. The LA Times recently reported Kim Kardashian is among several celebrities who have flouted the rules. But the majority of people are listening. LA used a record low amount of water in June and July. People are aware. Hancock Park resident Shlomate Yu says her neighbors seem to mostly be doing their part. A lot of neighbors have stopped, but then there's some people who seem to don't know or have ignored the new regulations. <laughs> so it's a mixed bag here. One obvious indication, lawns are starting to go brown. California stands to lose 10% of its water supply in the next 20 years as the climate crisis dries out the West. To put that in context, that's more than the state's largest reservoir, which is 35 miles long, can hold at capacity. One way the state aims to save more water, by removing 500 million square feet of lawns by 2030. 
So lawns, that symbol of the American dream, are looking to be on their way out in Southern California. That's the case for Lynetta McElroy, who moved to Lamert Park in the 1980s. She replaced her grass lawn with a drought-tolerant landscape during the last severe drought in 2014, the first on her block to do so. It was odd, it was different, but um, I feel that it was not only the right thing to do, I felt very firmly about that, but I was able to educate so many others, and they came around. Now, several of her neighbors also have drought-tolerant landscapes. I am happy that we're part of the solution. For NPR News, I'm Erin Stone in Los Angeles. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books, Boston Edition. Events, book recommendations, story hours, and more in the Seaport District. PorterSquareBooks.com. Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Help put cancer in the rearview mirror by donating your car, truck, boat, or motorcycle. More at DanaFarber.org cars. And Prompt.com, with a mission to help students stand out on their college applications and get into their top colleges through one-on-one application and essay coaching. More at Prompt.com.